If I could turn back time, if I could find a way, I'd take back those words that have hurt you. If you stay. Back to Word of the Witnesses, our 12 Monkeys Rewatch podcast. Just a reminder, we are a rewatch podcast, which means, guess what? We've seen every single episode of this series, and we hope you have too. If you have not, you're likely in the wrong place because we spoil early and often. This is Beep. I am joined, as always, by the lovely Cece. Hey, guys. And our favorite professor, Aaron, is back. Hello. How are you guys? Thanks for having me back always um so aaron has a podcast called metastation and they're doing some cool summer stuff tell us a little bit about it we are we are doing what we've called metastation summer vacation um for july and august and probably into september too so we just wrapped up um two podcasts on good omens um, so if you were a fan of Good Omens and uh, you're looking for some, you know, analysis and goofiness and a little bit of uh, flailing about how much we love Ineffable Husbands, you can check those out. And um, we just are going to start, I think later this week, we'll post our first podcast on the first half of Russian Doll, which is the next show that we're doing. So, um, yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes I was so, and, and that one's really fun. Um, I'd seen, I've seen all of, you know, Russian Doll. I watched it last year, but Claire, uh, when we recorded the first podcast covers the first four episodes and she'd only seen the first four episodes. So that first uh, podcast on Russian Doll, the first four episodes, It'll cover the first four episodes. It'll be spoiler-free. So if you haven't watched it, you can watch the first four. They're only like half an hour, so it's like a movie. It's like two hours. Um, and it's so freaking good. I just love that series so much. Um, and then we'll be doing the second half in a couple weeks. And then after that, uh, our last like summer binge series we're going to do is Gentleman Jack. Yes. Um, which uh, I think we're going to have... Um, a friend, a mutual friend of all of ours from our sister podcast, May We Geek Again, uh, Joe will be guesting on that one. So that'll be really fun. Uh, you know, lots of lesbians and, uh, you know, and, and Russian Doll, of course, kind of overlaps a little bit with uh, 12 Monkeys insofar as there are time loops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and cycles and things like that. So I feel like I've been talking about, I, we actually just recorded the Russian Doll podcast yesterday. So um, so there's a lot of time loop talk happening in my life the last two days, which is, of course, <laughs> always a delightful thing. <laughs> and dealing with um, really, really tough stuff mm-hmm. in a smart but yet ultimately hopeful way. Yes, yes. I and think they both have that in common. I think they do, too. And also, in, in the case of this particular episode of 12 Monkeys, um, in a very fun way as well. There's, like, a lot of sort of humor and and you know emphasis on like people loving each other which is something that i always appreciate in a tv show so um yeah so that's us uh metastation you can find us on twitter at at metastation 100 and uh, we're on soundcloud uh meta dash station so that's that's my other podcast home yeah, it's an amazing podcast. So if folks are listening and haven't checked it out, go do that because it's one of my favorites. Ah, thank you, Cece. <laughs> Cece has some programming announcements. I do? 
apparently. <laughs> oh, I thought you did all that. Okay. Oh, I have some programming <laughs> Oh, man, we're rusty, man. <laughs> Terry Metalis, Todd Stashwick, and Chris Monfett have agreed to join us for episode 307, Nurture. Ah! And we may have a few other surprises. I'm just excited. Okay. I'm excited. <laughs> Cece has feelings. I do, always. Uh, we may have a few other surprise announcements regarding Season 3 episodes coming up, so stay tuned. We're on Twitter at 12M Rewatch Pod, and we'll kind of be on hiatus for the rest of August, though, so just keep up with us there, and we will give us all the cool stuff as we find it out. Yes, we're not going anywhere. We're just waiting on some scheduling stuff. <laughs> it's a staycation. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, so I'm going to be honest with you guys. I totally listened to If I Could Turn Back Time in my car today. <laughs> I listened to uh, If I Could Turn Back Time and also The Power of Love because <laughs> Back to the Future. <laughs> oh, God, can I tell you that I had the bit – this is going to sound weird because obviously I had a crush on Michael J. Fox and Alex P. Keaton was my first television crush. But <laughs> Huey Lewis, like – Oh my God. <laughs> I had such a crush on Huey Lewis. And I look back at it and I'm like, I was like a 12 year old kid and he yeah. was like an older man. Yeah. It's weird. Huey Lewis in the News <laughs> was like a dad garage band that somehow became big. Like, yeah. Like you look at them and they're all just like, that's a bunch of like, you know, like day trader dads from New Jersey who had like a, wrote some dumb songs <laughs> in their garage and then became a thing. No, I love Huey Lewis in the News, but like, that's basically, that is what they are. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> so that is hilarious. It's like the equivalent of having a crush on, like, the dad next door. Who's <laughs> always playing bass by himself. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> hey, there's worse people. T- well, no, I was going to say no. That would have been weird to have a crush on the dad next door. But dad, uh, no, I'm just not even going to go there because the whole dad thing can get weird. Okay. At least he's not a hipster. Whatever. It's true. There are way worse people to have a crush on than Huey Lewis. That is true. Yeah. But also, do you guys remember the If I Could Turn Back Time video with Cher? Oh, Cher? yeah. Oh, my God. Do In I? that black getup. It was, like, scandalous, right? Because yeah. wasn't she on, like, an aircraft carrier? Yeah, she's on an aircraft carrier with a bunch of sailors. And this, like, this, like, it was, like, a V of, like, black electrical tape covering her, like, running from her crotch to her boobs. And her entire ass is hanging out. And she has this, like, mesh stocking <laughs> over it. And she's, like, dancing back and forth. Like, riding a cannon in front of, like, <laughs> hundreds of sailors. It was actually the precursor to Miley Cyrus's wrecking ball. I mean, basically, yeah. <laughs> except for, except less subtle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally played it in the car today, and my kids were like, uh, what? <laughs> what are we listening to? <laughs> it's a great song. That's on, my, that's on my workout playlist. And every time it comes on, I, like, do my best share impression. Yes. Well, it's hard not to. If you ever watch the original Will and Grace, it's impossible not to, like, go full Jack on that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) I just remember because I was one of those kids that watched MTV, like, obsessively, like, watched that, like, nightly countdown every night. And that video, my parents had in their mind, like, the whole, you know, Sunny and Cher thing. Yeah. I will never forget my mom's face <laughs> walking in 
when I was watching that video and it was like, I could, I could just like, if I think back, it's like, oh my God, I thought, I thought Madonna was going to be the worst thing, but now it's even people my age doing this shit. <laughs> hey, I mean, All if you right. look at the body that Cher had, you know, she's like, what, like 40s in her 40s and she's like, woman, like she could get it. Like if I had that yeah. body at 40, I'm going to be doing that for sure. I'm at, I'm at 42 and I, and I accidentally get that body. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm going to like go up to New York and get on the Intrepid and just dance around <laughs> because that's amazing in her forties. All right. So today, <laughs> hey, I think it's okay for us to be a little bit loopy because this is just a really fun episode of TV. Um, today we are talking about 305 causality was written by Kristen Rydell. She also wrote Bodies of Water, which is kind of important given the, all of the word of the witness and Cassie and Jennifer kind of picking up the conversation where they left off in Bodies of Water about their mothers. And it was directed by David Green. I believe he's one of the two main cinematographers for the show. And he also directed Immortal, which was the last time we were in New York City during a very specific era. Okay, before we jump in um, to kind of going scene by scene, there were a couple big picture things um, that I want to talk about. And first, just this, this is an hour of TV that is just so fun. (laughs) And it's just so fun. And it's coming off of four episodes, particularly Brothers, where we lost Ramsey, that were delving into some pretty, um, some pretty dark stuff. And, you know, now you, we have all been talking about a lot of other television shows, particularly sort of in the spring summer of 2019 that have turned or have continued to be misery porn. And so sitting down to rewatch this one, I just was in a place where I just super appreciated that tonal shift that I think probably the audience really needed. Like, I, I know this aired all kind of in chunks over like one weekend. So it wasn't quite that like week to week, but still like, you know, like it's been kind of a tough stretch if you think about sort of all of the things that have been happening to all these characters. And it's like pausing to remember to have fun. And in a way that I feel like we've had certain scenes that were comedic, but not like a whole episode like this. Yeah, I actually, I actually, um, so I, I binge all of like, uh, season three, episodes one through five yesterday just to get caught up because I hadn't had rewatched the show in a little bit and I wanted to make sure that I remember what came right before. And like the experience of sort of watching all of those five back to back, like by the time I got to this one, it definitely felt like, oh, okay, cool. I can take a breath, you know, like we're, we're moving the plot forward. Like there's some important stuff happening involving, you know, getting the next clue, the, the, the word of the witness, witness sort of map. And there's like, some like Cassie Cole stuff that's kind of moving plot forward. But, you know, after that sort of like really intense, almost in some ways, like almost kind of like breathless run of the first four episodes, it definitely by the time I got to this one, I was like, oh, cool. I can like, I can unclench a little bit, you know, like I can relax a little bit and, and just sort of like have some like watch, you know, watch like, not just like watch the, the caper, but also I think watch the actors have a lot of fun um with the the sort of the more like goofy or more unusual elements of this so yeah i sort of i can confirm that it, it definitely felt like a kind of like breath of fresh air to me 
Yeah. And uh, you're right. The actors, like, I mean, you knew that if Jennifer is in charge, we're going to have fun. Right. Yeah. Right. And so it's like the first time yes. we're going to see. Yeah. <laughs> and so she obviously she's fantastic. But like it, it I, on so many levels. But everyone is funny. Right. Mm-hmm. Like Todd Stashwick. And I could just watch him and Emily Hampshire, like, just riff back and forth about Bugsy Siegel for like, <laughs> you know, like, and then also like you get to see Amanda Shul like do these little comedic, like whether she can't find her watch and she's like, I am retracing my steps or looking at the Constance painting and going, oof, you know, like just <laughs> be funny in a way that Cassie in the past hasn't, re- she's had to play the straight woman a lot, mm-hmm. um, particularly with Jennifer. And then like Aaron Stanford has a lot of funny moments in this episode and Cole can be funny, but like you watch a show like Nikita and you know that Aaron Stanford can be very funny. And so, yeah, everybody just gets you kind of like, not only is it a breath for the audience, but you kind of get to see the actors stretch different muscles and it's really fun to watch. But it also, when you sit down, I think has a lot of really important, not only moving plot forward, but in terms of character arcs, one-on-one conversations um, in different pairings that even though it's super fun and it's it's kind of that fun Ocean's Eleven heist, but except with ridiculous 80s costumes, um, there's a lot of really important character stuff that goes on in this episode, mm-hmm. we, especially when you go back and rewatch it, you know? Mm-hmm. This is 100% an episode of Leverage. It, oh, my God, it totally is. There's actually there's a moment when they're all sitting around the table, um, you know, talking about the heist when like some music started playing that sounded to me like, like I was like, oh my God, this is like leverage music. And I was like, yep. it made me actually think like, I wonder if that's like a, a deliberate nod, you know, it was like so spot on to leverage. And like in a way that like I, cause leverage is delightful. Like leverage I is, love it. It's so, so much fun. It's like so relaxing and yeah. So like that, even that little like musical cue, I was like, oh, yay, leverage. Okay. Ha. <laughs> No, there was, I'm with you, there was one specific point, like, I always thought that in general about this episode, but there was one specific musical cue where I was like, dang, that's real close. Yeah, no, like, we're, to the point where it's like, that can't be a coincidence, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, I mean, it could be, but. But yeah, anybody that wants a super, super fun show that actually also deals with a lot of, you know, heavy stuff and bringing down bad guys, I mean, I, I'm always in for a leverage rewatch. Yes, I've never seen it. It's so, oh, it's so good. It's so good. Mm, all right. <laughs> um, maybe after I finish my Black Sails watch, after I'm done with Murderous Pirates. Also so good. <laughs> <laughs> so, but one, I guess one of the things, particularly uh, now that we know how everything ends up, um, the name of the episode, Causality, I, have, I think has a lot of different layers of meaning above and beyond the sort of maintaining the chain of custody regarding the word of the witness, which is kind of like the most like uh, um, overt meaning of it, right? And particularly with like the characters referring to it and worrying about causality and how are they going to get access to word of the witness and still maintain sort of this like chain of custody so it ends up where it's supposed to be. Um, And, you know, I looked up the meaning – even though I know we throw it around a lot in a time travel sense, and there's a lot of other layers of meaning in the time travel sense to this episode, but I think it also has some other perhaps um, meaning. So let me explain. So 
you look at the definition, the re- causality meaning um, first definition, the relationship between cause and effect, it, or the principle that everything has a cause. So on the time travel, like in the Jones being obsessed yelling about causality throughout this entire show, time travel sense, in addition to the word of the witness, um, we also have now we realize we're watching the Project Karen germinate in Jones's mind. And what I think is interesting on rewatch is she's thinking of solving a problem that actually what Cassie and Deacon witnessed is something that she created. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like the destruction of the facility. And, and granted, of course, it's because they're being attacked um, by Titan. But she is, it's Jones's own little loop, if that makes sense. I'm not sure if I'm articulating this right. And that she's told that there's a problem in the future and that the facility is destroyed. But the facility is actually destroyed because she moved everything that was underneath in the machine herself. And so... Like the whole germination of this project comes from that intelligence, which is actually already people witnessing what she already did. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So there's this kind of hidden causality loop as we're watching Jones kind of puzzle out this problem in the beginning of it that we didn't really, we weren't aware of, you know, on first watch until you get to 401 and you see what Project Karen actually is. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's that one in and of itself is an extremely closed loop where it's like this is what happens because this is what always happened. Right. And also, I mean, I think that um, right down to uh, Cassie and Cole going out and burying the tethers because Cassie already dug them up. You know, like that whole thing is just like one closed loop of causality. Right. Yeah. So that's the other one. Right. So there's all these different loops of people of, of like. In, in the, like, classic time travel Jones yelling about causality sense, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That I think also raises some interesting questions, which are kind of what Cole and Cassie are dancing around a little bit, about when you have these loops, you have, and characters frame it as fate sometimes, um, but it's kind of like this... Where do you, how do you define free will and fate when you have people making individual choices and yet you have these causality loops, you know? So like at the end of the episode, you have Cassie, because another one, another causality loop they're worried about, right, is Cassie losing the watch. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if she doesn't find the watch, then as she puts it, like, you won't find it on my corpse <laughs> at the <laughs> CDC. <laughs> You know, just that casual banter. <laughs> I did think it was funny. I lo- it was kind of, it was morbid, but it was great. Like, it kind of broke the tension. But, so that's another loop. And then you have Cassie at the end taking it off her wrist, putting on Cole's wrist and saying, I don't, I don't believe in fate. You know, like, we make our own fate. And so there's kind of this interesting, it's not just causality, I think, sort of in the time sense, but people whether it's the watch, whether it's Ethan, you know, we need to find where he's been. We already know what he's done. Th- those kinds of questions. Um, and Aaron, I know you kind of talked a little bit about this on your Good Omens pod about prophecy and free will. Am mm-hmm. I remembering that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we talked a bunch about um, the kind of different relationships that characters in Go- Good Omens have to prophecy. Particularly, there's one character, um, Anathema Device, who, you know, she's um, 
she calls herself a professional descendant. You know, she's the the great 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 something granddaughter um, of this woman, um, uh, Agnes Device, who wrote a book of prophecies, like the one true book of prophecies in existence, and all of her prophecies are are completely accurate. And so she's this character who's like lived. She's been raised her entire life. You know, like basically, like and told, like you have a destiny that was written down by this great, 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 great grandmother. You know, it's all in the prophecies, and your job is to go out there and make sure that like these prophecies come true, and and to follow them in order to kind of to to stop the apocalypse, which you know also kind of uh, dovetails with this. But you know, there's a there's a bunch of questions mm-hmm. about sort of. There's like a, an interesting tension in that in that series as well, where you have Anathema, who's sort of like she's got. She's got this book and she's got every single, you know, like prophecy on index cards and she has like a notification on her phone and like her entire life is sort of like rigidly um, structured around these prophecies and sort of building to this point. And then you have this other character that she uh, winds up sort of working with named um, Newton Pulsifer and he's the descendant of the witch finder who killed her grand great 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 grandmother um and at one point there's this kind of like there's a there's a big storm and all of her like her box of index cards gets blown around and she's distraught you know she's like i don't know what to do if i don't have these cards if i don't have the next prophecy you know like i I don't know if i don't have agnes to tell me what to do next i don't know what to do um and um you know and and this other character, Newton, is sort of like, well, have you never just, like, done something just because you wanted to, you know, did you ever, you never just sort of, like, did something even though a prophecy didn't tell you to? And she, it's, like, clearly this kind of, like, mind-blowing thing to her, this idea that that she has free will, that she has this ability that she can choose, basically, you know, like, that these prophecies exist, and they might be true in some way, but that she can still sort of, like, choose to exercise her own choice. Um, and at the end of the... It's obviously like major spoilers for <laughs> good omens. But um, at the end of the series, you know, she, she receives another book of prophecies um, from Agnes and chooses to burn them because she basically is like, I don't want to live by this anymore. So it's like, I think, you know, the sort of question of like, uh, of in what sense free will exists in a situation where you have prophecies that are true, I think is interesting. And like, whereas it would seem as though, you know, like something like, you know, by definition, accurate prophecies or the word of the witness, where it's like a written record mm-hmm. of things that have already happened, would seem to indicate that, you know, everyone is kind of, that, th- that this is universe without free will. You know, um, the, there's actually a lot more wiggle room. And, I, you know, and it's one of those ways that also is, is because, like, I think, and this is true in 12 Monkeys, too, where it's like things wind up coming true for reasons that the characters don't expect. You know, like they, the, they sort of are like trying to avert whatever is going to happen. But the truth is it happens because they were exercising their free will, you know, because they were making a series of sort of like choices um, that were informed by a lack of total information, you know? So it's like uh, partly an issue of, of like, you might know a piece of the future, but you don't know everything. And that's important. But um, yeah, but obviously it's different here too, because there is a possibility to rewrite the future as they do, you know, in this episode, like, Olivia gets the the nosebleed, you know, at that moment mm-hmm. where Cassie messes up and becomes, you know, <laughs> the uh, the competitor for Constance. Um, but I think I, th- you know, that seems to me like when when Cassie says she doesn't believe in fate, 
that's like a really tricky moment too because we also like we as the audience like we know that her doing that is something that Cole already knew would happen too. So it's this like really interesting moment where like mm-hmm. she's asserting her free will. She's saying I'm defying fate and giving him this watch that he already knows he's going to get because future asshole told him that he was going to get, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's like so it is this kind of like there's a little bit of a kind of like gut punch level where, you know, where in this moment where Cassie's like fuck fate, you know, fuck causality, fuck all this stuff. I'm going to make this free choice and it's like yeah, that's a free choice in this moment, but it's also already been done. Like, you already did that. Mm. Uh, You know, the interesting thing of everything you were just saying, and I haven't uh, watched Good Omens yet, but the first character that you were describing that was all about the prophecy and the index cards mm -hmm. and whatever, I mean, how much does that art coincide with Olivia? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know, even to the point where it's, like, the first thing that was, like, this wasn't foretold. I mean, that's when her whole freaking life goes off the rails. Yeah. Yeah. Because she was brought up to believe, like, her entire universe only makes sense if everything that the witness said is true and true in the way that she thought it was true. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, like, it is, like, shattering to to be confronted with this notion that this thing that is, like, the foundation of your entire universe is not what you thought it was. Yeah. Or or even like Ethan. It reminded me of the first episode of watching Good Omens and you have the baby that everybody mm-hmm. thinks is the Antichrist that isn't. <laughs> and it reminded me of like Ethan, right? Like he never was the witness. He's this little boy who's being raised by these people who think that he's going to bring about the end of the world as we know it. And he's not really the witness. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. And there's so. a kind of there's an interesting sort of nature nurture um, question happening in Good Omens as well as what the, the sort of, you know, the, one of the things that kicks off the plot is um, the very beginning of the story, um, you know, the Satan sends his son, the Antichrist, up to Earth and they're meant to, they have this whole plan, you know, they're meant to deliver the, they're meant to swap out. Um, there's this American ambassador mm-hmm. who's having a baby in England and, um, and the demon Crowley is sent to swap the Antichrist for this American ambassador's baby. And the idea is, you know, like they want the, the Antichrist to be this child to be like, you know, in kind of in a position of power, you know, like placed in a, in a, in a position of sort of geopolitical power. Um, but there's a, you know, sort of a series of hijinks ensue and somebody else is had giving birth at the same convent at the same time. And there wind up being three babies. And so the actual antichrist gets sent home with this like regular English couple. And, um, the, the American ambassador winds up taking home, not their baby, but just like another regular baby, but none of neither heaven nor hell know that. So everybody just carries on, you know, like, uh, these, this angel Aziraphale and the demon Crowley are sent to go, like, they, one of them poses as the nanny and one of them poses as the gardener and they spend 11 years, like, trying to, like, this push-pull, you know, like, trying to influence the <laughs> Antichrist, to, like, make him really evil or make him really good. And meanwhile, the actual Antichrist is just, like, a regular kid in this, like, small little village in England, like, running around in the woods with his friends, um, you know, and, and other than being, like, he's, he's kind of, like, the leader among his friends, and he's really, you know, he makes up the best games or whatever. He's just, like, a regular kid until one day, like, he starts getting powers. And there's a so, um, it's kind of interesting, this, like, question of, like, what is it that makes you actually evil, you know, is, is the Antichrist 
evil because like he was born that way? Is it nature? Is he always destined to be evil or, or is it nurture? Is there having been raised as just a regular kid for 11 years? Is that enough to kind of like counteract the, the fact that his father is Satan? (laughs) Um, And he has these like, yeah, which brings, so, so that's perfect segue because the other, the other meaning I thought uh, to the episode title, causality, of course, it has to do with all these time travel loops and and sort of the cause and effect of people's choices. But also, one of the things that all of the characters are talking about, whether it's Cole or Jennifer with her father or Deacon, is that nurture versus nature. Mm-hmm. And, and what causes us to be who we are. Right? Like, whether it's Deacon being like, well, Ramsey was a bad dude, so chances are Sam's going to be a bad dude. To Cole being like, if Ethan's bad, it came from me. Um, to Jennifer saying, if I wasn't the person whose mother tried to kill her, who would I be? You know, those, all mm. those, there's so much character work that is delving into this nature versus nurture, which of course is going to be this season long, you know, culmination with Ethan. And we have episodes named nature and nurture, but <laughs> um, yeah, I, I thought maybe that's kind of another meaning to sort of what the theme of this episode is like cause and effect, but also what causes us to be who we are. Yeah. I think this is so integral as well to Cassie's kind of shift as far as thinking like, yes, we do have choice and it's not fate because of how much she wants to save her son. And the only way that she can do that is if she believes that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, for her, it becomes an article of faith because, uh, you know, she can't bear to imagine that this baby that she already loves so much could be just inherently evil. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But I think for Cole, too, you know, it's also something where, like, it's very clear in this episode that, you know, that, that a lot of the struggle that he is having is is him sort of projecting on this child the sense that like something is sort of fundamentally rotten in him because of his guilt over Ramsey you know the sort of like maybe mm-hmm. maybe you no know, matter how hard I try to be you know a good guy like I'm always just gonna wind up back being this like killer mm-hmm. and Cassie's kind of like pushing back and having that you know and, and saying like what he did, he did to survive, you know, like you did what you had to do. Um, which does seem to track really well onto her kind of like her sense that like her son is just like an innocent baby, you know, that she has to save from becoming the witness. Whereas Cole in this moment is sort of like, my son is the witness, which proves that I've been garbage since the day I was born, basically. <laughs> yeah. Right. But they I know th- him from opposite ends, too. Yeah, Cole that's true. Of the man and Cassie has met the child. And as soon that's as Cole true. meets the child... We have a shift. Yeah. That's true. I think also, that's totally true. But also, I think what's interesting is, you know, a Cassie that hadn't gone through her season two arc, I don't think could speak to that. You had to do what you did to survive. Oh, for sure. You know what I mean? In the way that she can, because season one, Cassie may have, you know, may have given that lip service, but didn't truly understand the world that Cole grew up in. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's just a lot. It's just such like all these arcs. I mean, I, I love how this kind of battle for Ethan's soul refocuses sort of like, why did Cole start on this journey in the first place? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like it refocuses on his because last season, he was the guy that was always trying to get people to choose the more hopeful, right? Like, right, you know, and so it kind of brings back up that 
it reminds me of some of his like season one scenes when he was like, look, I, uh, I know I don't, I don't earn, like I haven't earned forgiveness, but maybe I can do something to try and redeem myself, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, um, and then we'll, and then we'll jump into the episode, but in terms of causality of things having sort of a cause and effect, there are several key character choices in this episode that have profound it has a profound effect on the way season three is going to unfold. And that is, I think, mainly Cassie and Cole choosing to keep this a secret. Mm-hmm. Um, and in part, Jennifer aiding them, right? But when you look forward down the line to like season three and sort of like the the chasm that is created between like Jones and Hannah and Deacon and Whitley on one side um, – and Jennifer and Cole and Cassie on the other side. Jennifer gets kind of stuck in the middle a little bit. Um, some of it is about Ethan, but the way Jones puts it in masks is, why couldn't you have trusted me? You know, it's it's the lie, I think, and withholding as much as sort of the bombshell and the way they find out. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and I guess that takes so that can take us into, you know, Cassie and Cole's first scene that is before the opening credits where you go back and forth where there you've got Cassie like outright lying to Jones when she's asking her about her time at Titan. What do you guys think about that choice that they made to keep it a secret? I think Man, secrets are never a good idea. Yeah, I understand. I it. It's so human. Yeah, I, I mean, I understand it, and it's so human, but it is never a good idea. Yeah, I agree. I, I completely understand why they make that choice. And I think, like, they, they make that decision for different reasons. Like, I think it feels like Cassie, it's a little bit more about protecting him. Um, you know, she doesn't want to, like, see her baby vilified <laughs> um, or hunted. Um, and Cole, it seems to be a little bit more about shame. Um, it's like this great and shame. Wanting to, stay in, like. ga- yeah, yeah, and wanting, wanting to stay, stay in the game. game. Yeah. Wanting to stay in the game. Or even protecting Cassie, considering Ramsey just went to kill her. Yeah, that too. That too. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. And again, you can imagine that you could easily see a world where they sort of spill that information and Jones is like, well, you know, the logical solution. <laughs> um, <laughs> We'll go kill Cassie. That's the easy one. Um, so, so I get why they both make that decision, but I agree. Like it's, it's one of those where it's sort of like I can't say that I would do anything. I would, I would make a different decision if I were them in that particular situation. But it's definitely like, ah, oh, guys, no, I wish you would have said something. <laughs> and it is wish hard on the other them. side being Jones. I mean, because oh yeah, is, when all this shakes out. And they're literally shooting at each other. It's kind of like, you know, I thought we were more to each other than this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how it would have gone, to be quite honest. No, I don't know. I don't know that that the outcome would have necessarily been better, you know. And in some ways, it's kind of like it it almost could have been in the long run sort of like destructive red herring. You know what I mean? Like. Like, they wouldn't have gone after the word, of the, the, you know, getting the word of the witness. Like, there's a lot of things that they wouldn't have done because they would have been fixated on how do we make sure this baby isn't born. Um, mm-hmm. Which we all know eventually is, like, like not the thing that they actually needed to be most worried about. But, um, yeah, it is it is one of those. I mean, like, the, I think that's one of the reasons why it works so well as a plot point is, like, 
everyone's sort of reaction to it and the reasons that they decide what they decide are are completely understandable and believable and and it's hard to imagine anybody doing much differently and every single outcome is like complicated and traumatic and tragic so that's one of those right. good no win situations <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to put your yeah, characters right. like in. I can totally picture my husband and I being like, "Look, if our kids see Antichrist, we're going to deal with that problem." <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we are keeping that to ourselves. He may be the Antichrist. He's still our baby. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. Um, so if we can jump to Casserole going in to talk to Olivia. Um, and that's when you get kind of this first, you get that first sink, like when Cole's like, yeah, no, I rebooted the cameras, you know, you're like, oh, they're like sneaking around and you're like, this is going nowhere good. Yeah. But- also, Cole would have no clue how to do that. I just want to <laughs> <laughs> Did he really um, do it or did he just like make that up and yeah. then sort of cross his fingers? He just and unplugged it. Checking- that's some yeah. like work off bleed over right there. Like, no, dude. Yeah. <laughs> By reboot, it's like my level of tech expertise where I'm like, I think he means he turned it off and then on Yeah, it. he just unplugged <laughs> it and then plugged yeah, it again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, did you guys have any thoughts about, because there's some delicious levels of irony to this conversation between Cassie Cole and Olivia. Um, so I just want to ask you guys if you had any thoughts um, before I kind of point oh, out a few lines. Man, her shade. She is like... She's amazing. I feel like she- She's in such a position of, like, not power, but just almost, like, gloating, you know? Like, you guys thought you were the good guys, and you've been fighting in me, and, like, you basically caused all this, and you guys are the worst. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the crazy thing is Olivia hasn't seen Cassie for decades since she was, quote-unquote, preparing her in the bath. Remember when they were in Monkey Mansion? Right. In season two. And so for Cassie, it's been a few months. Or I, or like, I guess now considering Titan, it's been like over a year. But for Olivia, it's been decades since she's seen Cassie. And now Cassie's walking in and looks exactly the same. Like, it's always, I, it's always like crazy when you think about sort of like that, like, when's the last person, when's the last time this person saw each other in terms of like passage of time? Um, I love the line... His house of cedar and pine was about him. Mm. First of all, she's going to burn that to the ground in the season finale. She's going to order it burned to the ground. But second, like, she actually picked the house of cedar and pine. Yeah. <laughs> That's the place where she talks <laughs> to her faithful. Um, I think that unless you guys have anything else about sort of that Olivia scene other than her just, you know, feeling like she's the one in control, even though she's the one behind. Well, uh, there's kind of an interesting question of causality there in that, you know, like we know now that eventually she will choose, she will choose that house. Um, But, but there's a kind of, there's, I think there's maybe a causality loop there because does she choose Mm -hmm. it because she already knows that she chose it? You know, like, like this is Olivia sort of, like acting out the loop that she doesn't know that she created for herself. Correct. Uh, right. Which is she chose like a, it because it was already chosen. Or she, exactly. or she also chose it, or she chose it like she, ch- or she chooses it because it's part of her causality journey that she has to think that this witness is another person, right? And have that hatred put her on the path that she's been on since mid-season right. two. And if right. she, way, chosen, she chooses like, it, 
Yeah. She she always chooses it because she already chose it. Like that's it's it's just right. it's always <laughs> it's that loop circle. And I think like yeah. you know Olivia winds up being like such a fascinating character. Like on rewatch, she's so fascinating because you know because she like like you said like she has this like this this experience this arc that like spans decades like decades and decades and decades because even before she wound up you know like back in um 20 20 whatever when she finds sam you know like she'd already spent decades like in the 20th century i mean like she's been around forever right um and unaware that what she's being driven by is herself and there's almost like this sort of level of like it's not like not an allegory obviously but the sort of like she fascinates me as a character that's like driven by like traumas that she herself is not even conscious of you know like that she's Mm -hmm. doing things and she she's doing things for reasons that are inside of her but that she's not consciously aware of and so it's like just really fascinating to sort of like watch that unfold now that you know that that's what's happening (laughs) especially when she transitions over to the the place where she's rebelling (laughs) when it's like yeah oh honey you're just doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing (laughs) right (laughs) Right. (laughs) which is like like the epitome of the problem of like i have free will but it's like yeah but this is what you did already exactly like cassie cassie being like i have free will screw causality i'm giving you the watch you know it's like the mini the little mini loop version of like that's olivia's entire story (laughs) it's true (laughs) yep (laughs) Um, that's a good point. Um, gosh, there's so many causality loops in this episode. There really are. Um, So many. (laughs) Okay. So that takes us to the magic of the Jennifer heist pitch scene. (laughs) And I'm just going to say, go. (laughs) Tell me, tell me what you feel about it. I not clean up because. (laughs) I want, like, if I could give out one retroactive Emmy. Mm-hmm. It would be to Allison Down and her like <laughs> pitch perfect impression of Emily Hampshire's performance of Jennifer. Like it is uncanny watching watching Olivia being Jennifer. Like I, you know, the the voice, the mannerisms. Like it's just it's unbelievable. I I had completely forgotten that when I re- until it came up. The first time I watched it, I thought it was a voiceover. And it was right, me too. To be, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was supposed to be, and then she did it so well <laughs> that they were like, okay, we'll just use this. I think that's what they said when when Allison Down and Terry Metalis were on. Um, yeah. I was mean, amazing. That is... And then I wanted like a body body snap or snap, <laughs> hold on. Like a body swap episode of like oh, let oh my Allison God, seriously. play Jennifer for a while and see yeah. how that pans out. Just like have an episode where Allison plays everyone because she could absolutely do it. Like it's for uncanny sure. is believable. It was unbelievable. <laughs> there's it's all there's also so much about it that is I mean, we've had, we had, like, you know, it's always through Jennifer, right? So, like, we had the Jennifer in the city, Mary Tyler Moore montage. We had 99 Luft balloons. But this is, how many times have people outlined a mission in the, in the situation room in this show, right? But now Jennifer's in charge. So, 
I guess it was David Green, the director. I don't know, like, in the script, but, like, there's so much that is so different than anything this show has ever done. Like, not only the, like, totally zany, like, word of the witness and a fruit smoothie of everything you ever wanted to know, but we're afraid to ask. Um, and then she touches the, the fence and it's electrocuted, like, right? So she gets electrocuted and then falls. Like, it's, like, just going for it, like, comedically. And then you've got, like, the Jennifer pitching the heist and, and they're discussing it, but the characters are actually, like, in Jennifer's head in the 80s. You know, when Cole is like, mm -hmm. well, she's like, you know, this is a bunch of rich assholes and we've got one asshole, but he's not rich. Like, referring to Deacon. <laughs> and, like, you know, like, the, like, Scooby gang, you know, like, where each of their heads pop up on the shelf. And it's, like, I get, like, it's just another one of those perfect but you never could have imagined it because we're in Jennifer Goins head and I, I guess this is how she's filtering their their like situation room conversation it's just so different from anything that the show had done before and I'm like so curious like you know it's I, I think it's pretty like it's a pretty brave thing to do like this is a pretty serious show and they really like go for it in terms of the comedy yeah. and kind of the zaniness you know it's a it's a big risk to do that big atonal shift you know like that's that's a risk to take because that could you know that could go down like a lead balloon but it really really worked yeah like 99 lead balloons oh. <laughs> oh, sorry. terrible you're the one who was making fun of the bread puns the last pun it was literally just to get you guys riled up <laughs> and it worked so who's the fool now uh, totally I saw worked. the other day I was at a bookstore and I saw a tabletop top game called the Punderdome um, you and just you compete. bought it? Uh, well I haven't yet I'm going to buy it for my friend Ian who loves making puns for his birthday so that he can have a game he always wins <laughs> oh, I truly do love puns I'm not going to lie puns are great the pun the Punderdome. <laughs> the Punderdome. <laughs> yes. And I think the gameplay is like you draw a card and it gives you a topic and then everybody just has to come come up with as many puns as they can. So it's like a pun off. So it's Letterkenny. Basically, yes. It's Letterkenny. <laughs> yes. Letterkenny the game. I'm such a geek because that sounds really fun. It really does. Right? <laughs> yes. I would be all over that. All right. So um, then we have, um, like, there's there's so many, and I don't know if this is just because you get to this point with a cast filming together, but there's so many small character moments. Like, when Jennifer, one of my favorite little details in the scene, and there's so much to love in sort of her whole pitch, but right before she starts, and Deacon just goes, here we go. <laughs> and does that little hand thing. And he's just, like, one, one of the times I rewatched it, I just watched Deacon's face and how gleeful he is at, like, how much fun Jennifer's having with all of this. And I just, like, loved it so much. Or that, like, dramatic pause that Jones takes as she lights up her cigarette and everyone is waiting for the verdict. Right? Like, Jones is so much <laughs> You know, like, everyone's just, like, breathless waiting, and you've got Jennifer, she makes that little, like, mouse squeak noise of, like, being nervous, and then her, like, that is a remarkably cogent plan, Miss Goins. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, it's so good. This is the first really big uh, Jennifer Deacon 
episode. Yeah. Yeah. So like really seeing how it's like just the two of them. And he really does start to like support her and is like, oh, maybe there's like more to this chick than, you know, just the crazy. Which I think is much easier for him to swallow now that he just spent, you know, months in a cell going crazy himself. Talking to the hallucination of his own father. (laughs) Right. Yeah, no, and I think, like, like the little sort of moments uh, you're talking about, Cece, in the, when she's pitching, you know, where, like, the one person who's, like, really, like, vibing with Jennifer on this level, you know, like, the one person who's sort of, like, I know exactly what you're doing right here, and I am, like, enjoying it as much as you do, is Deacon, and it kind of, like, nicely sets up this, like, really sort of wonderful, but a very unexpected way in which these two characters kind of, like, click, you know, like, they get each other on a level that kind of has nothing to do with, like, their past, per se, or, like, doesn't seem to fit with their, like, worldviews or ethoses, but, like, they both, in a, like, in a weird way, it's almost like they have the same sense of humor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Also, they're forever going on missions to, like, kill people. This is yeah. literally, like, a fun heist. Like, right. we have to be real sneaky and we get to steal some shit. Like, they also right. both, Yeah, <laughs> they also both love pop culture. Oh, yeah, you know, exactly. right? So, like, you know, when Jennifer's like, okay, I need sizes. I have costume ideas, right? Like, you know that Deacon was like, yes, I'm fucking Miami Vice. Well, you can even you see, know? like, when they when they walk into the Emerson, like, Cole is, like, visibly uncomfortable with his clothes. You know, you can see him just being like, I don't know what the fuck I'm wearing. Like, what is this? What's going on? And Deacon's like, hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> Crockett and tubs, man. That's yeah, exactly, me, right? yeah. yeah. Like, he's, like, I, into it. <laughs> Yeah, well, so, and I know, because I, like, I know that, like, um, I think there are some writers on this show that don't want us to ship Jennifer and Deacon, but I'm sorry, man, this episode made, like, I was, I was super into Jennifer and Deacon, like, ever after this episode. Like, I, I honestly ship Deacon with almost everyone, but I definitely ship him with Jennifer, yeah. Deacon's like my, my, like fandom bicycle in this fandom where I'm like everyone can get with Deacon it's fine with me <laughs> everyone can everyone can go for a ride <laughs> seriously everyone <laughs> my fandom bicycle uh, <laughs> I'm gonna need a minute I could easily cross into a yikes on bike situation oh absolutely absolutely I mean I'm not saying that, that, that a lot of those wouldn't end poorly I'm just saying I would enjoy imagining it for a moment <laughs> I think what I liked about it is, um, you know, and obviously it's not canon. It's just like fandom, you know, fun, like what if. And it's obviously in the realm of fanfic. But what I liked about it, particularly when you have um, the scene after the pitch where you've got, you know, after Cassie and Cole are like, okay, what are we going to do? And then it shifts to Deacon and Jennifer. And Deacon, you know, Jennifer's like... The only one at least audibly worried about Deacon's, like, physical condition, right? Because he was just, like, overcoming, like, multiple stab wounds. (laughs) Um, And, um, you know, in his response of, somebody's got to watch your back. And they're, at least at this point in the episode, they're both on the outside, right? Like, you've got Cassie and Cole conspiring over in a corner. At one point, Jennifer had feelings for Cole. Obviously, Deacon has had feelings for Cassie, and they were both the ones, like, not chosen. And so there's something kind of lovely, no matter what form that love took, right? Like, whether it's platonic or whether in the realm of fanfic that it's romantic. But there's something kind of wonderful 
that these two people who kind of, it's a longer journey for them to find their place on this team. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and who both were rejected at various points, like find their whatever you want to call it kind of soulmate, right? Because they're the ones that end up in the reset together at that bar. Um, and it's kind of lovely, like in that way. Um, yeah. And, I and think they've also g- both been antagonists to the entire group. Yeah, that's point. true. true. Yeah. yeah. And I think like another thing that they both have in common is that like those two, Deacon and Jennifer, are definitely in like very different ways. I think the most like emotionally perceptive or like emotionally intelligent characters in the group, like they're the ones who really are very, very aware of like kind of what's going on with the people around them all the time. Um, even if right. it's people they don't know well, you know, like you're pointing out sort of like, you know, Deacon being the one or, or Jennifer being the one to clock that Deacon is like not 100 percent and Deacon kind of saying like you need someone to watch it back and Deacon sort of noticing that something's going on with Cassie and Cole. So I think like that's another way that they have mm-hmm. this sort of like, like surprising sort of like under undercurrent or like um, threads of commonality. Um, that really mean that they they could understand each other, I think, better than than Cassie or Cole can understand either of them. Right. Or even, yeah. Certainly not Jones, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, Deacon is a very keen observer, right? He's yeah. the one mm-hmm. being like, something's weird, something's up with Cassie and Cole. No one else mm-hmm. is asking that. Um, even though they're like literally like whispering in the corner. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, um, before we go, before we go to as much as a child of the 80s, I'm dying to go to 1989. Um, I just want to really quickly touch on the Jones stuff um, before we spend the rest of the podcast in 1989. Um, so we talked a little bit about it. I thought that one of the things about like sort of just sort of like character continuity and um, is the conversation between Hannah and Jones, where Hannah says, this isn't a home, this is a lab. Mm -hmm. And Jones saying, this is my home, and I won't be chased from it. It's picking up the thread of sort of Hannah's disdain um, for her mother's life work um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, and science, right? And she's calling it like, she's like, this isn't a home. She doesn't call it a bunker, right? She calls it a lab. She targets the like the science part of it, right? And her mother, like her mother's been there for how long, right? Like this is her home. So I loved that moment. I love the sort of, um, the machine can't be moved when Jones screams it. Cause you're like, first of all, it's like, so Jones to be like, I'm, she's never going to give up on this mission ever. Right? right. But like, she's going to figure out a way to move the building. <laughs> when She can't move the machine, you know, like, um, and then I love the touch and they use it actually to like key off of, um, when Cole is having the nightmare about killing Ramsey and you, and you see Sam's model, and we hear Ramsey's voice, and that's how they kind of transition from the Jones scene. But I love that that mo- like that prop, that model from season two that Sam built. Um, Jones has looked at it a lot. Like she she looked at it when she was sort of ruining the cost of her mission and losing that little boy. Um, but now it's also like she's never going to give up. Like there's too much sunk cost. She's never going to give up on this mission. And I love how they use that model as sort of like the keystone for that scene, even though it's like technically it's helping her process thinking through 
Project Karen. Like, how could I use sort of all of these, for lack of a better word, like the the time travel beams the same way Titan works to like move the whole thing, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Um, And I love how like Whitley, you know, I just love all those Whitley and Joan scenes. I just, I love Whitley. And him telling that story that he wanted to be an architect um, and Aaron, I don't know if we've mentioned this with you before, but there is a deleted scene where in the reset at the very end, um, Whitley is, a, is an architect. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, you know, if you haven't watched the deleted scenes for season four, this little nugget about what Whitley's dream is in the reset, he does get to become an architect. You see him sort of making a pitch in a room. Um, And I love that he's like, you're already working on a batshit crazy plan to get out of here. And she's like, the craziest. (laughs) But like, also, she's going to give herself that idea. Remember? Like in season four. So it's like, even this project, Karen, is like such a crazy loop in and of itself with Jones, like the fact that it already happened gives her the idea to do it. But the only way she can figure out how to do it is if her future self like gives her the crib sheet of how to do it. Like, it's all crazy. Um, Aaron, did you have any thoughts on kind of the name they use from Greek mythology? You know, the ferryman that takes uh, the newly dead across the river Hades? Um, not many other than I, I believe that traditionally you have to pay the ferryman, uh, to get across. Uh, so there is a kind of sense of like Karen is the, Karen is the way that you get from one world to the next, you know, in that, mm-hmm. in that sense. Um, and I suppose like sort of moving into the, the wreckage, the like dead graveyard that is New York City kind of, you know, might have something to do with that. But, um, but I, yeah, if I remember correctly, you have to pay the ferryman, you have to pay Karen to be rowed across. So I think there's a, it might be something potentially in the sense of like, you know, there's, there's a cost to making that voyage. Mm. So I don't know. That's yeah. all I got. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it could be like a preemptive warning to herself, you know? Yeah, yeah, Like exactly. all this sounds like a great idea, but like, I know that we're going to lose something in the process. Well, it's right. like paying yeah. homage to that and you know preemptively right yeah. exactly exactly right um, like jones play, jones does i mean she couldn't possibly know this but by executing that she exposes herself to the radiation um yes oh that's a yeah. good point too so it is and and actually that makes sense because um the other thing about karen is that you know it's a one-way trip like karen won't take you from you know back across the river from right. the land of the dead to the living. So so I guess also in the sense that it's a one-way trip for Jones as well. You know, once she makes the decision to move the machine, you know, to move the building and move the machine, then that she's paid her toll and now she's mm-hmm. dying. And Yeah, and you have to pay the toll for yourself. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, good points. Yeah. <sighs> All right. So that takes us to, we're going to go back to when they spun her away. You fucking and- turn back time. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Can I, like, this song is, oh my God, I'm so, that makes me so happy that you did that because I have the worst voice, but I was fucking singing that song at the top of my lungs in the car and making my children really embarrassed today. 
Um, so what I love, first of all, I remember when that song came on and I'm like, no, they fucking didn't. Oh my God. <laughs> it's the most perfect song. And then you look it up and it is from 1989. It's like the number three oh, yeah. hit for the year for 1989, right? Like their music <laughs> cues are always unbelievably on point. Like, um, so then you have Jones drop, perhaps, is it the first, her first F-bomb of the series? When oh, she's maybe. like, I don't when, know. It might be, yeah, it might be. When Jennifer's splintering away and she's like, any more advice? And she's like, don't fuck it up. (laughs) And they bleep her out and it made me like, I don't know if if it was the time slot that 12 Monkeys aired on sci-fi, but like, don't you wish Jones could have dropped F-bombs all the time like Chris Jen on The Expanse? Oh, yeah. Pretty much. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like, I'm at her, I don't know why. I have, like, a dirty mouth. But, like, her F-bomb made me really, really happy. And I love that um, Jennifer's response, a real Tony Robbins, this one. <laughs> His the Tony Robbins infomercials, I, of course, I looked it up. And they started in 1988. So, of course, she's quoting, like, whoever the inspirational guru was of, like, in pop culture of the time that she's going to. Um, <laughs> right. Rather than, like, where she's from. <laughs> And I also like as the the lyrics of I mean besides just the you know the title of the chorus if I could turn back time mm-hmm. um, I think the I think of they like play part of the first verse from the song which I feel like is also very like apropos for this episode mm-hmm. um, the first couple lines like I don't know why I did the things I did I don't know why I said the things I said which just like which is like. So exactly what's happening with like Olivia right now and uh and even like Cassie and Cole to some extent. So yeah. I remember like mm-hmm. rewatching that and like hearing the lyrics and being like, Jesus, like this song is like eerily on point. Right. <laughs> Especially right after uh Ramsey. Yeah, exactly. Right. So yes. Like, feeling guilty over that. Yes, yes. Yes. Right. Like I have those moments where I'm like, ah, oh, did they make this share song fucking deep? Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) There's something about it, and I don't know what it is, but there's something about this specific part where I feel like she does this weird thing to her voice when she's like, Was all our weapons? Was all our weapons? Sometimes. (laughs) She goes so hard. She goes so hard. It's like, it just changes somewhere in there, and I just like can never get that out of my head. The song is legit. The song is in How my bad favorite. was that? Did I do okay? No, you did great. That was really Thank good. You. The song is like a, a <laughs> one of my favorite examples of my favorite music genre of all time, which I like to call bombastic nonsense, <laughs> which like also includes every, everything by Meatloaf. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> anything written by Jim Steinman, anything sung by Taylor Dane. And all about oh Do you it. have a Spotify playlist for this? <laughs> I do. Yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll link that to yeah. the pod on Twitter. Like Aaron's bombastic nonsense playlist. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I'll be in the grocery store and Taylor Dane will come on and I'm like, man, Taylor Dane, you didn't have to go so hard when I'm like in the frozen food line. She went so hard. <laughs> One of, like, the peak, I think this is probably, like, the most quintessential moment of my entire marriage was, uh, this was, like, a few years ago, my husband and I were watching um, The Shadow, which was a, a comic book movie, it was, like, it was an um, an Alec Baldwin vehicle, this was, like, back around the, like, Dick Tracy 
yes. sort of era. And yeah. so I think The Shadow was, it was like a, a comic book, but it was also like a, a radio play sort of thing. Like The Shadow was this like sort of like privatized superhero guy who battled like bad guys or whatever. Um, and it's like, it's a, it's a not a good movie. It's like almost a good movie. It's like, it's like so close to being a good movie that you can like smell it, <laughs> but also really bad. Um, <laughs> and Those like are sometimes the best ones to rewatch. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like it's kind of fascinating. Like it's, the cast is really good, like weirdly really good. But then also it's got like like when when Alf Baldwin becomes the shadow, he has this like weird like prosthetic nose, and then like there's this whole <laughs> subplot involving like his 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 like special powers or whatever came because he spent a bunch of time in like China. So it's like. And of course, the way that they deal with that in like a 90s movie is like high key racist. So, you know, it's like this, like there's some issues. But anyway, so like we got to the to the final credits and, you know, like the the like song, because of course, it, like this is what I think more true in the 90s. Where, like every big blockbuster movie had a song that would like go oh, with sure. it. You know? Was a video for it, yeah. Yeah, of course, oh, like yeah. for it, like you know, like um, like I would do any or uh, uh, uh what was the Robin Hood seal song? seal with the Batman what seal was, with um, the Batman. Yeah, you're talking about Robin Hood. I'm talking uh, about Robin Hood. Like I would die for you. Uh, oh, oh yeah, yeah. Everything I do, everything I do, I do for you. Brian yes, Adams. thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I mean, what <laughs> I watch, I watch that. No, I watched that video eighty thousand times just for glimpses of Christian Slater. <laughs> I feel like I know that video. That heart. movie, like I've I have a lifelong obsession with uh, all things Robin Hood, so I've seen that many times. But anyway, so um, there, so we get to the credits of the Shadow, <laughs> and the song starts playing, and like about thirty seconds go by, maybe something like that, and then at the exact same moment, like we said at the exact same moment, I said, "Is that Jim Steinman? Is this a Jim Steinman song?" And Jordan said, "Is that Taylor Dane?" And we were both right. It was Taylor Dane singing a Jim Steinman song, <laughs> and we were like, "That's it! All right, mic drop! Like we can like." Everything can end now. Armageddon can happen. This is like the most peak us moment watching this like ridiculous, terrible 90s action movie and recognizing Taylor Dane singing a Jim Steinman song. Oh, my God. So in the category of I'm sorry, it's total tangent, but in the category of movies that are not good and yet are just good enough that you want to rewatch them all the time is Kevin Costner's Robin Hood. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. I watched and that I, like a million times. A million times at like every sleepover because it was like, dude, I'm not in it for Kevin Costner, but I'm in it for the Christian Slater like Will Scott. And also, and also uh, Alan, Alan Rickman, Rickman like yes. eating the goddamn scenery. Like every <laughs> yeah. bit of scenery. Just and like saying he's going to cut that guy's heart out with a spoon. Oh, so oh. good. It does get a little rapey at the end, but I had to rewatch it. I re- I watched it with my kids. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. Like when you're watching it with your 11 year old daughter, and you're she's like, "What is he trying to do?" And you're like, "Oh God, he's trying to rape her." Like on the oh God, like yeah. But I will say that, like, dude, I know Christian Slater is still, you know, like it, you know, it pains me at age 42 that Winona Ryder's the mom in Stranger Things and Christian Slater is a dad and Mr. Robot. But yeah. like, but. She was like, she kept like, she kept being like, so, so who's, who's, who's this guy? And what she kept asking about was Christian Slater. I was like, dude, uh-huh. he's still, he uh-huh. still got it, man. It's like whatever generation Z this is, is watching this movie and he still got it. Like floppy I mean, hair, no matter what, like Christian Slater still got it for the Christian dream. Slater in, you know, Heathers, mm. he can get it anytime, anytime anyplace, yep. anywhere. Oh man. Yeah. Okay. But... 
In yes. the context of Robin Hood, <laughs> both the best movie and the hottest character. It's not Robin is, Hood. No, it, it's <laughs> Disney's Robin Hood. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Both the it's, hottest Robin Hood and the best movie. Absolutely. Hands yeah. down. Hands down. The animated fox is the yeah. hottest Robin Hood and always will be. Yes. I spent a lot of time. I spent so much time as a child trying to get a blanket to stay on my head so I could be like Maid Marian from the Disney Robin Hood. <laughs> so much time. And I couldn't figure out why it wouldn't stay on my head. And then I was like, oh, it's because I don't have pointy ears to like, for it to like, so then I got to. some of those. And <laughs> Oh, God. All right. I got to rate us back in. Um, you got Aaron. I like we got on a Robin Hood tangent. Okay. So. <laughs> Where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I forget when Robin Hood came out, but maybe it was around 1989. So let's go to 1989. <laughs> <And> <laughs> Did I see it playing in the background at the hotel? It's so weird. Yeah, totally. <laughs> oh, my God. Because it has my favorite bad line delivery of all time of all movies ever, ever, is when everybody, it's like towards the end of the movie and you think everyone's going to be hung and they've like raided, um, uh, nodding, like they've Sherwood raided Forest. Sherwood Forest. Oh my God, I'm like, how am I fucking up Robin Hood mythology? They've raided Sherwood Forest and you have all of the townspeople be like, oh my God, like, what are we going to do? And they're like, you know what? Like they've taken our children and they've taken our homes and da da And you have this like huge music swell. And then you've got Kevin Costner just go, well, by God, then we take it back. And it's like the <laughs> biggest, like, like you think you just asked him to like borrow a fucking stapler. It's like the live delivery on all film. And I will like go to the mat to that. All right. So Kevin Costner is not a bad actor, but he is terrible in that movie. <laughs> he's fucking terrible in it. I know. He's so anyway, bad. Thank anyway, God they had anyway. Morgan Freeman and Alan Rickman uh, and Christian Slater. Okay. Yes. So, all right. And Brian Adams. <laughs> Brian Adams. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, let's go to New York City, 1989. Um, we've talked in the past, and Aaron, I don't, I don't think you've been on for one of the ones where we've talked the the show, whether intentionally or just because they were shooting in Toronto, and Toronto kind of looks like New York. They end up giving us a series of portraits of New York City in different eras. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, and not only through sort of the cinematography, like, right, you had 1940s where it looked kind of like sepia, and then David Green, who directed the 1970s episode of Mortal, it, it looked like a 1970s film, like everything was kind of gritty. Um, this episode reminds me of like Working Girl or Wall Street or kind of this like, this like New York that was, and I grew up in like an exurb in Connecticut of New York. So I remember going to this New York City where it's like right before the market crashed, but you had women and like, you know, the huge shoulder pads and you've got like Leland Goins with his huge phone. Um, and I love as a kid that grew up as a Mets fan, whoever put together this montage knew that in 1989, the top baseball ticket would not be at Yankee Stadium. It would be at Shea Stadium <laughs> because the Mets had won the World <laughs> series three years before and I love when they get like details like that right and they show Grand Central Station that's when the Grand Central Station was going through like their huge renovation um, project was like right around that time and then they show the two like the the Twin Towers like it's a very like 
if you step back and think about all the different portraits of New York City that this show does from the 1940s to post-apocalypse with abandoned taxi cabs, it's kind of great. So yeah, this one is like, you know, like Olivia looks like she could have been like Sigourney Weaver's like work colleague and working girl. And Jennifer mm-hmm. looks like she's from like her later when she's Carolyn Markridge. I think she looks like she's off of like an episode of Dynasty. Like, yes. she's like you know, like she's full <laughs> Joan Collins in all of it. Um, So I just love like uh, you know it's totally my like personal nostalgia because I like remember this New York City <laughs> but that takes us to the lobby entrance just go <laughs> I okay such nonsense <laughs> I mean it really is like honestly like my first reaction and I, and this is like such a like like as soon as I thought it, then I was annoyed with myself. But like I looking at their at their outfits, I was just like, those are all from totally different p- periods of the eighties. Like the Marty yes. McFly costume, like that was nineteen eighty five. Like by nineteen eighty nine, that would be like super dated. And same with like Cindy Lauper, that was earlier eighties. You know, so uh-huh. I was like, so like they would look so like if they walked into the lobby looking like that, they would be so conspicuous. <laughs> Because Jennifer was like, I'm going to the 80s, and I'm going right. to pick my favorite 80s pop culture references. Which right? does make sense. Which does make sense. I do like this. So there are, there are a couple of very subtle little nods to um, Back to the Future in this episode. Um, Back to the Future, by the way, is my my husband's favorite movie of all time. Like, he can recite the entire thing. Like, anytime you watch this movie, he's just, like, saying all the lines along with it. So... Um, so I'm very, very intimately familiar with uh, with Back to the Future. But, like, besides Cole being in the full Marty McFly outfit, which is, like, perfect Marty McFly, um, of course, at the end of the episode, we see um, Christopher Lloyd is playing, you know, has that sort of, like, um, arc this season, and he was Doc Brown in um, uh, Back to the Future. But also, and this one is, like, this is like a deep, deep, deep cut. Like you have to be so, so familiar with Back to the Future to catch this one, which made me happy when I heard it. Um, so later on in the episode, when Deacon says, like he accidentally calls Leland Goins dad, and then he corrects it by going, dad, dad, daddy-o. That's a, that's a line from yep. Back to the Future. Oh, yeah. When Marty actually accidentally calls George McFly, his dad, he's back in 1980, uh, 1955, uh, he accidentally calls him dad and then has to play it off by going, dad, dad, daddy-o. So I was like, oh, my God, like, whoever wrote this episode, like, they got that little, like, very, very, there's a couple of sort of, like, more obvious ones, be like, hey, we're nodding to Back to the Future, but that was, like, one of the really, really, like, for the real fans, nods to Back to the Future. Not the not the casual viewer. Yeah, yeah. Not for the oh fake fans. <laughs> oh, it's my least favorite term thrown around on the internet. <laughs> no, we're Real we're fans. a gatekeeping podcast now. That's yeah, yes, that's yeah. right. Although the Real endless- fans. Real fans usually mean male fans. Yeah. And fake fans usually mean female fans in fandom. But yeah. There is almost actually, and like even in the, like the anachronism of, um, or, or there's sort of like the like 80s costumes where they walk in and they're like, it's like costume party 80s. Like this is, this is the like 2040s Jennifer's version of the 80s costumes. And, you know, like there's a couple of jokes like that also in the Back to the Future trilogy. Like for instance, in the third movie when, um, Doc Brown is trapped in 1885 and so and Marty's stuck in 1955 and so like 
Marty and the 1955 Doc Brown have to send Marty back to 1885. It's like a whole thing. Uh, <laughs> there's a bunch of loops involving like Doc dying in the past, whatever. Anyway, so, um, so you know, there's like a whole sort of like running joke early in that film where um, where Doc is like has to like they're sending Marty back to 1885, and so the 1955 Doc is like, okay, I got you some like I got you some period clothes, and it's like. It's like these. It's like what a western, what a what a, like a guy in a western B movie from the mid nineteen fifties would right. wear. You know, um, it's like so he's got like this like bright pink shirt with like tassels and like blue pants, and so he walks into this western town and everybody's just staring at him like, oh, what the fuck? Are, like, I think somebody's like, did you get lost from a circus or something like that? So yeah, so like even <laughs> even the sort of like anachronism, like the very like sort of. Um, the like the costuming weirdness of uh, Jennifer's nineteen eighties costumes um, is also like a grand tradition of the time travel uh, genre. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because just like everything in this episode, it doesn't come from Jennifer being like intimately acquainted with the nineteen eighties. It no. comes straight out of Hollywood and what she saw and how she assumes that the world was. Because yeah. Of that. Right, exactly. Right. So, like, yeah. So like it's like people didn't run around in Cindy Lauper costumes like that. Right, like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> right, right. And everyone in the past, in the past, when they've traveled, they've always been so concerned about standing out. You know, it's it's like we got we got to get clothes, right? Because we don't want to stand out. And right. Je- when and they Jennifer's in charge, right? And when Jennifer's in charge, she's like, "Oh no, we're gonna do a fucking mic drop yeah. <laughs> when we walk through this lobby where and no one else is dressed like that." It's so great. How conspicuous can we be? <laughs> if you guys had to pick one '80s character from pop culture where you could have their outfit, who would it be? Ooh, that was oh, not man. a good era. <laughs> that, yeah, that was. What is that? It was an amazing era. <laughs> yes. That hair, that oh yes. no. Yes. Oh my god. I mean, my choices were like. I mean, I was like twelve in nineteen eighty nine, but like in the nineties, I swam in plaid and like oversight like huge jeans, and everything was XL. So I, I don't know. I think it's a crapshoot <laughs> between those I think two I, decades. I, I kind of like the um, Molly Ringwald's character in Pretty and Pink. Is she's got like mm. some cool funky style. I think I'd go with that. About someone from the Breakfast Club. Well, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, who? Ali Sheedy. Ali Sheedy from the anybody's Breakfast Club. Clothes. Yeah, fine. <laughs> I I want um I forget the actress's name, but do you remember Can't Buy Me Love? Yes. With Patrick Dempsey. Yes. I want that white fringe jacket. Okay. Ooh, that's yeah, very eighties. Yeah. So 80s and like not remember the one that starts the whole plot that gets like spilled on, right? That's like her mom's. Yeah, I think I would pick that one. Also, actually, I would take um, uh, Marty McFly's girlfriend, Jennifer, her outfits in uh, her outfit in uh, Back to the Futures. Okay, it's like very, it's very like understated. It's like floral pants and like a jean jacket. That would be fine too. <laughs> that were probably Laura Ashley. Yeah, but almost assuredly. Um. <laughs> I mean, it is fantastic that you had, you know, you had the Marty McFly, like, taking the sunglasses off moment, right? Oh, yeah. It's in character because Cole is so annoyed, but it also (laughs) is a total homage to Back to the Future. But, like, it's in the same episode where we're going to see Christopher Lloyd at the end of the episode, you know? Like, it's, like, the layers of, like, pop culture references that, like, it's just so fucking delightful. Um, All right, if you don't have anything else, The way we are going to kind of break down the rest of the episode is, until we get to the end, to stick with pairs of characters 
and kind of run through all their scenes together, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So let's start with Jennifer and Cassie. Do you guys have sort of any overall impressions of sort of, right, and I love the continuity. Like, this is the writer that wrote their road trip in Bodies of Water, Mm -hmm. and now they're sort of picking that conversation back up. Any sort of first thoughts? Yeah. It's it's interesting, I think, that even though they have been separated so long and haven't had a ton of interaction mm -hmm. since then, I mean, I guess they did, you know, they had Lullaby and the stuff back and forth through that, but... I think that it's good, especially after everything Cassie's been through, to show that that interaction made a difference and that she still carries, like, what she learned about Jennifer that day and is able to express some compassion that she never had for her before. Mm -hmm. So that I think that's a really good tie-in. And it also makes sense with, you know, with Jennifer sort of coming back now as a mother, you know, um, that that sort of stuff would be at the front of her mind, you know, thinking about Jennifer and her experience with her mother. And especially with like Jennifer also as a child with like parents who really fucked up, (laughs) you know, and Jennifer as a person who like very, very easily could have, in fact, almost did, you know, become, if not like a bad person, at least someone who, who, I mean, Jennifer almost started the plague, right? And she easily could have, and she was preyed upon by Olivia because of sort of her, the you know, her nurture, like the fact that she never had these relationships with her parents. And so I think you can sort of see, like, it makes sense to be sort of like emotionally attracts that, that Cassie, who's so thinking about her son and thinking about what it means that her son will eventually become the witness and, and sort of thinking about it now in terms of like, these people who are raising my son, what are they doing to him? And looking at, at Jennifer, like, okay, you're like, you're a person with a super fucked up childhood and, and you're a good person, you know? So like, okay, like it's possible. How do we get here? You know? Um, yeah. Is there something I can pinpoint that can, I can either do to or for him to prevent what's about to happen. Right. right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. When she asks specifically, when she asks sort of a question, which I think is interesting in that, you know, these characters have never asked to use time travel for kind of these personal reasons. Right. And so when Cassie, you know, when she's like, well, we could, I don't, I mean, I think she is genuinely concerned about Jennifer, right? And Jennifer has to play her mother, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if that doesn't shove everything about your childhood back in your face. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, it's massive trauma. Massive triggering. Yeah. Yeah, especially a mother who freaking tried to drown her, you know, like, Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Jennifer, when Jennifer, we'll get to it, but like, when Jennifer, when Cassie says, your mother tries to drown you in 91, we can go back and change that. And I think you're right, Erin, in part, it has to do with Cassie asking, like, what can I do to change whatever's written on the word of the witness in mm-hmm. Ethan's life to change who who we think he's going to become. Um, but also when you think about like, we're going to see four year old, they say that Jennifer's four, which means when her mother tried to kill her, it's two years after this little girl, like mm-hmm. this little girl that we're looking at throughout this entire episode, her mother's going to try and drown her in two years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ugh, it's a lot. Um, <laughs> and then Jennifer's answer, both by who she's chosen to be kind of belies this idea of everything your parents do to you is who you have to become. Yeah. But on the other, but, but on the other hand, she also says, I don't know who I'd be if I'm not the kid whose mom who tried to kill her. So it's like both acknowledging 
which I love because what I what I particularly has really bothered me lately in some dramas is particularly with female characters that trauma defines who that character is. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is really honest, right? Like Jennifer's like, that thing happened to me. I don't know who I'd be if that thing didn't happen to me. And yet on the other hand, Jennifer is very much on a journey of choosing who she's going to be. And even by the end of this episode to her father's face is like, rising beyond like beyond it and claiming it right like in a in a positive way you know like Mm -hmm. talking to her little like the smaller version of herself like that's when you're going to start to live right Mm -hmm. in contrast to what we've been seeing so much lately though it doesn't go so far as to justify like that that's how she became who she is she says you know i don't know what my identity would be otherwise so for better or for worse i'm who i am because of that but it's not that I needed that or that it was good or like, hooray that it happened. You know what I mean? Right. It's not the Sansa from Game of Thrones line, you know, the rape made me stronger. <sighs> you know? Like, yeah, yeah. it's not, right? Or like Veronica Mars, like, you know, just wallowing in trauma because they think that's what's interesting. It's, yes, these horrible things happen to these characters just like they happen to people. But the story is like, I don't know, paying respect, like, respecting that without allowing the characters to be defined by it. Does exactly. That make sense? Yeah. But she's yeah. also not yeah. claiming that she's not making that claim, you know, of like it made me stronger or whatever nonsense. She's just saying like it shaped me and it, mm-hmm. it has contributed so much to me, to my life, to my path. Like if you literally just took out that one thing, I can't imagine like what would be there after that. Yeah. Um, one of the things that really rang true to me emotionally, um, and obviously everything that Cassie's, um, it's it's not just that she's had a child, obviously, and that child's been taken away from her, and she's worried about the what that child's fate is. But when she talks about, you know, the other piece of what Jennifer and Cassie talked about in Bodies of Water was how Cassie never got to talk, you know, that her mother died suddenly. Um, and we're obviously going to see later this season, um, Cassie do exactly kind of like what she was suggesting to Jennifer, not change something, but use this time machine they have at their disposal to do something personal for herself. Although it is part of sort of like her personal mission to save her son. When she says, I find myself missing the talks we never got to have. I can't imagine if you had a positive relationship with your mother, which certainly seems like Cassie did with her mom going through having a child and not have your mom to talk to because you understand your mother and your father after having a kid in, in a way that you never did before because you now like you see how hard it is. (laughs) You, you kind of have a little bit more um, appreciation for like the sacrifice, right? Like if, if you had like, I don't mean to say like universal, if you had parents that you were a positive force in your life is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, obviously it has to do with the plot and obviously it's setting up what Cassie's going to do two episodes from now to go see her mom. But there's some real like um, it, it, it rings really truthful, like in an emotional way that you would be really yearning to talk to your mother after having a child. It's really 
it's just, it's just really sad, you know, in yeah. a very ordinary way, because there's a lot of people that don't have their parents with them. And so, you know, I love that this show as crazy as like, obviously, the plot is, and she's worried that her son's going to bring about the end of the earth. She's also just a woman who like, had a baby and misses her mother, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, there's such simplicity, but like, authentic. Yeah. Yeah, no, and just, there's just lines that hit you, like when they're talking about the cars that they're using as their ruse to get into the warehouse when Jennifer says, Daddy likes to collect things, keep them locked up. Like, you know, which obviously has a double meaning because he locked her up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all, like, straightforward and makes sense in the conversation and yet has this really kind of, like, deeper meaning. Mm-hmm. Did you guys have anything else about Jennifer and Cassie? I don't think so. I mean, I I also noticed that um, it passes the Bechdel test. I was watching it and I'm like, they're sitting in the car and neither of them are talking about like, I mean, Jennifer is, I guess, referencing her father, but neither of them are talking about like, you know, they're talking about themselves. Um, I think that takes us to Cole and Deacon. Oh, Cole and Deacon. <laughs> oh, this is great. Oh, he's oh. got to whip him out. <laughs> right? I mean, one of the things that this episode, this is our first episode in sort of the post-Ramsey era, you know? Like, this is our new kind of Scooby gang, right? This is Deacon's first time he's ever time-traveled, you know? Like, oh, that's right. Oh, my God. Deacon. Right? So, like, he's delighting at it. He's like, oh, my God, they're playing Genesis in the lobby. I could go to the bar and order two drinks. You know, like, you know, they don't spend, like, a ton of time with it. But he is, like, delighted, right? Like, this is Deacon who, like, has been living in the post-apocalypse the whole time while the other characters have been time traveling. Ramsey's gone. And now it's Deacon who's going on these missions. Um So Cole's drinking a wine cooler, which I love because it's so 80s. Um and Deacon walks up. Um, do you guys have any sort of initial thoughts about this conversation, which is brutal and also funny? I do think it's hilarious that Cole is drinking a wine cooler while it happens. Just because, like... <laughs> <laughs> like, I also, like, I really wonder, like, how did he wind up drinking a wine cooler? Because surely Cole does not know what the fuck a wine cooler is. You know, like... <laughs> Like, did he order a whiskey sour and the and the bartender was like, I got a whiskey sour Bartles and James. How about that? And he's like, sure. <laughs> I mean, it's clear that like um, the Emerson Hotel is going downhill and I don't think it's probably in great shape in the 80s. So maybe which Cole does make sense. It's like, man, I. I yes, bet that would like absolutely. historically tracks that would be when that would be the era when a, when that kind of hotel would go down. So maybe they actually don't have maybe the guys like I don't have any sours like you want straight whiskey or I can give you a <laughs> wine cooler. And Cole's like, oh, why wine cooler, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's so it's they, there's a level like this conversation. There's a lot to unpack. It is on some levels brutal in that the things that Deacon is saying that he thinks he's talking about and what Cole is hearing, given what Cole knows and has experienced, are uh, kind of crazy. Um, but also they're having this conversation while Cole is still dressed like Marty McFly. <laughs> Deacon is still dressed like Crockett and Tubbs, right? Like, so. Um, all right. So 
sort of like the initial thing that hits me is that when Rams, I mean, when Deacon brings up, like, I didn't think that you had it in you and he's obviously wants to get into like what happened with Ramsey. This whole thing, it like if you think back to season one, the conflict between Deacon and Cole is that he wouldn't kill Ramsey. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so now, like, Deacon's like, you know, when he says, I think I didn't think you had it in you, and he pauses, we're sitting there with Cole as the audience. And obviously Cole's absorbing it, meaning didn't think you had it in you to kill your brother when obviously Deacon doesn't know that. And he's only talking about, you know, that you didn't use the time machine to bring him back. Yeah. Um, But also, I don't think it's too much of a stretch. You know, I didn't think you had it in you. Something Cole's wrestling with this whole episode is what is inside of him, you know, and where the conversation goes on you know he's sort of like they're debating and and it's interesting because it's like Cole's like you know Ramsey tried to do what he he always thought was right and Deacon kind of gives voice to what I think like a lot of people in the fandom you know it's kind of interesting and I don't know if it was kind of meta commenting on like what fan response to Ramsey was but he's basically like you know he barely knew that kid um and he did whatever was best for him uh, and I'm, you know you hear that that is oh, a man, thing that like, i thought a lot while watching the first two and a half seasons <laughs> right but then what deacon says is ramsey was not a good guy none of us are sam would have turned out the same way mm. and there's so much like let's just unpack first thing what that means to cole and what he's struggling with with ethan I mean, I think that's it. That's another place, or this is another place where that idea starts to seep in even deeper. Yeah, which is not to say Cole would have never gotten there on his own, but I mean, that's just like a jab of somebody saying it, like somebody articulating it in a way where he almost has to absorb it. Yeah, I think you're right. And then also, I mean, like you know, I hadn't thought about uh, Deacon saying, "I didn't think you had that in you," and and sort of Cole that like sort of jolting Cole into thinking like. I have something inside me that makes me capable of killing my brother, you know, like that. I think, I think you're right that that kind of like, maybe like, not that he wasn't thinking that, but it maybe sort of articulates a feeling that he had in a way that makes it like really conscious in a way that it had, that it was just sort of like. It was almost tangible. Yeah. Yeah. Like before he was just just like this sort of crushing guilt. And now it's like, oh, that's what this is. This is what it is, is like discovering that I have like the level of like, you know, evil or brokenness or whatever inside of me that makes me capable of doing this thing. Yeah, up until this moment, it was likely more of an abstract thought. And now it becomes very concrete. Yes. And also something I think whereas it kind of becomes not just sort of like, you know, rather than like in that kind of like moment of exigency, he was capable of pulling the trigger, but it becomes sort of like I mean, I guess that kind of goes back to the question of destiny. Like, you know, for Cole, it becomes like, oh, no, the only reason that in that moment you pull that trigger is because you were always able to do that because there's something inside of you that made that inevitable as opposed to Mm -hmm. just like it being circumstantial, you know? So like maybe that kind of like a little bit kickstarts the sort of sense of like there's something in me that is like genetically transmissible to my son. (laughs) Which is interesting because in my mind, Deacon is speaking on such a wider scale more so about the world around them. Yeah. Which is I, to say that there can be no good 
people because yeah. of the circumstances in which we live. Well, I think Deacon also- is talking about nurture. Deacon is saying right. like none of us yeah. are good guys because none of us could be. And Cole seems to like hear him and think it's about nature. Interestingly, right, right. Well, and then the the other layer to it is, you know, few episodes ago we really got into Deacon's headspace about what he thinks about himself and mm. nurture and in nature and his father. Yeah. And so when he says Ramsey was not a good guy, none of us are. I think he's he's certainly talking about himself as much as Cole. And what I think is interesting oh, is that Oh for sure. Right? Yeah. And what's inter- yeah. And so it's like he's you know, like, that's something that Deacon feels about himself and struggles with the same way that Cole does. What I think is interesting is that the narrative uses Cassie telling both of these men that are sitting at the bar at various points, you're a good man. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like, she's going to say that to Cole in this episode, and she's going to say it to Deacon in the series finale. Um, so it, it is... Um, you know, Ramsey's gone. So it's a new dynamic. It's obviously going to be a very long road for Cole and Deacon to get to the point where they can sit down and have a drink in demons and, you know, acknowledge like they were never going to be brothers, <laughs> but maybe they could be at least friends. Um, I'm not sure if that's a deleted scene or not, or it's like an extended scene. I can't remember if that's actually in demons or if that's part of an extended scene. Um, but this is kind of like, this is our new dynamic on the show. And I love that they, these men both have this in common in terms of doubting whether or not they're good men and, what they're capable of and yet they cannot emotionally connect <laughs> and it leads to Jesus it looks like it hurts <laughs> Cole slams his head into the bar right and Cassie comes in like he's like oh. not even phased though he's just like oh what's the next thing that's about to happen but then they act like two little kids who got caught doing something yeah, like seriously. terrible and they just turn around they're like nothing mom like it's no yeah <laughs> kids are like supposed to be going to bed and their mom catches them having a pillow fight or something exactly like- <laughs> Absolutely. or looking at like little porno mags when they that they are keeping <laughs> under their mattress <laughs> what is that they slam it shut and they're like nothing <laughs> yeah i mean it's also like you know it sucks for cole <laughs> To have to be sitting there knowing that what he actually did and Deacon is like needling him, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's a really interesting dynamic. Like, and I think part of it is Deacon is his antennas are up. He knows something's up and he's like needling him. Um, Yeah, he's poking around and I'm, I'm not convinced that he is not a little bit suspicious even of that. Not just of what, you know, not just of how Cole and Cassie are acting, but I, I think he might be a little bit suspicious. Well, I think he definitely, yeah, he smells like, you know, Cole coming back and being like, Ramsey's gone and not really talking about the details. Like, I think he sort of smells like there is a lot more to this story than you are letting exactly. on. Exactly. And I think he instinctively yeah. knows that, like, if they were, if this were a story in which Cole was completely innocent in Ramsey's death, Cole would be telling that story, you know? And so I think he sort of, I don't think that he would ever guess that Cole, like, shot him in the back but you know like i think he probably is like you are like something fishy like you are Mm -hmm. you are deliberately not telling us something because it probably makes you feel guilty you know at least if not something more serious right and i think i think deacon's still kind of i mean like because this like you said this is like deacon's first like mission on like on the 
the team and there's this, he's still got a certain level of insecurity. And so I think like there's, there's that old dynamic of Deacon kind of wanting to knock Cole off his pedestal, I think too, you know, Mm -hmm. to sort of like remind him like, you're not better than me, you know? So yeah. Well, and what they just had happen was he freaking saved Cassie and he, you know, and yeah. he's all, where's Cole? And then he gets back and they're like, everyone's face is like downtrodden yeah. before she shows up. So, I mean, I think there's also like a lot of kind of resentment there of like, fuck all of you guys. Like, I'm the reason, you know, that she's even here. Oh, yeah, and for sure. I can't get any credit or appreciation for anything. Right. Yeah. And then as soon as Cassie sees Cole, she like, she forgets the Deacon is even there. Um so, yeah, so I, which is another reason why I, like you were saying uh, a while back, Cece, I think like, like he and Jennifer really kind of like they see each other in a way that neither Cole nor Cassie sees them. And then I think this is the episode where they both recognize like, oh, here's a person who like actually like fully sees me, you know, like here's a person for whom I don't fade into the background, um, which is why. Yeah. Which is why I love yeah. them so much. Not that I don't love Cassie and Cole, but there's <laughs> such a special yeah. place in and, my heart for and Deacon they don't, and Jennifer. They don't push me, you know, they don't um, see me in the background, even though they see me completely. Yeah, exactly. They know, yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? He knows that she's batshit and she knows that he's sociopathic and they're still just like, cool. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. They're like, yeah, I, I see. I can meet you where you are. You know, like right. Deacon. Deacon, I think with Cassie, like I think he, like he really like you know, like I think he was in love with Cassie, and I think he still kind of is like all the way to the end a little bit, but in that weird way where it's sort of like he knows that like he will he will never feel like he's good enough for her. You know, like she's this like right. this like golden angel that he has to aspire to be or whatever. And 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 like the beautiful thing about Jennifer is she's this like for both of them. It's sort of like you don't have to be better than you are you don't have to be anything other than what you are you know you can be a sociopath or you can be you know you can be like uh, like a little bit wacky like it's fine it's cool like i get you you know like you make weird references and it makes me laugh and that's cool <laughs> i mean she, she literally knows he's going to kill her yeah yeah that's a really <laughs> good point like, yeah. cool want to be besties like <laughs> yeah well i think that that also like it's like in the meantime <laughs> yeah I, I would really like to have that guy watching my back The the part of Deacon that I feel like, the part of Deacon where I think he feels like he's unforgivable, it's like a huge thing for the person that he actually killed to be like, that's cool. It's fine. I'm over it. Let's move on. I'm good. That was ages ago. That was so long ago. That was like literally a different me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, I love that Deacon, right, like Deacon has this like special connection which we'll get to but with jennifer at so many different stages of her life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like so all right so if you guys know anything else about deacon and cole um two men who loathe one another and and themselves while drinking wine coolers um let's go to um casserole next if that makes sense yeah no excuse us while we turn everything into jennifer and deacon <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait, who are we talking about? Okay, Gaia. <laughs> we're, we, we still have, I'm saving Jennifer and Deacon for the end. I know that you guys love them. Um, but I really, I, this is a quieter episode for Cassie and Cole. But what I appreciate about this show is they let, this episode lets them just talk and have several scenes talking about what happened in the past, what are they feeling and thinking now, 
And it's not, I mean, it's a little bit to move forward the plot, but it's basically setting up their their character arcs, for like lack of a better way to put it. And it's not, um, like I could picture on many other shows that this reunion of sort of your central romance where they've been separated would would play out very differently on other shows. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah, it'd be like, like a two-minute blow-by and then, hey, we've got shit to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> wow. <clears throat> I know which show you're talking anyway. about. <laughs> mm. I, okay. okay. Oh my gosh! And I was like, I was like, blow by. Was did she? Was that a sexual thing? Or no, like, I wasn't even dirty. I meant like they're blowing by one another. Like they just come through like a fucking tornado here, like two minutes, and then whoa, no, 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 everyone. The only reason she'd be using her watch is to be like, come on, we gotta go. Like, yeah, right. Or, or yeah. the other direction. I feel like where it would be like sort of high key romantic, and they'd go oh, yeah. straight to bed, and there would be kind of like this, you know, like emphasis on like. Yeah, and like just like the sort of romance of it, and and but I like one thing I appreciate about the show about you know the show and the, like this episode is like they the emotional honesty of like allowing Cole and Cassie to both be like so happy to be with each other again and to love each other so much, and for also for it to be like so freaking awkward, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. like it's true, it's totally witty, right? <laughs> it would be, you know, like I I remember like I there was a, it's been a long time since like I've had any have been like long distance with my um, partner at all but like when I was like long ago when I was in college you know I'd be gone for the summers and I come back and it was always sort of like like even if you don't have like a giant you know like elephant in the room like whoops we accidentally conceived the being that is going to end the universe like <laughs> even just if like everything's cool and you're regular people if you've been apart for several months you come back together like it's weird you know it's just like yes. it's hard to kind of like refine your rhythm and like there are there are things about that person that you've forgotten or things that might have changed like it's just it feels it's like a very ambivalent experience often. Yeah, and you're out of sync. I mean, yeah. there's certain mm-hmm. ways in which you've fallen out of each other's routines. Like, even though you were talking or doing whatever before, it's not the same as when you were in person. And now mm-hmm. that you've fallen out of that, it's like, okay, well, where do you fit exactly? Like, how do how do you, you know, what role do you play in my day-to-day, especially? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, they have this awkward thing going on. So it's like, yes, they are happy to see each other and... And I don't think there's a concern that there's, like, a long-term issue. And yet, at the same time, the show does not let us forget. Like, they are not in a good place right now. Yeah, no. Like, they love each other very much. They're so grateful that they are reunited after never knowing if that was going to happen. And at the same time, like, they are not on the same page emotionally, you know. And the things that they each individually went through are so hard to speak of together, you know. So I think they kind of hit that that sense of, like of longing to sort of re-sync and the difficulty of doing it. And I love that they let them bicker in this episode, you know, mm-hmm. like it's so funny and it's like such good couple bickering. You know what I mean? Like as a married oh, yeah. person watching that, I'm like, yep, that's exactly how you argue with each other. You know? Yes. <laughs> Especially my steps. Tracing. Yes. He's yes. My steps. Like, I was <laughs> literally in the car. Like they didn't go anywhere else. Like, like yeah, that's what I'm doing. I already thought of like, especially when you're like a little bit out of sync and you're just like everything that I was like, I love you so much, but every, literally everything you're doing right now just gets on my last fucking nerve like you need to give me some space (laughs) (laughs) 
And it's and while that's happening, you're fucking sealed in a trunk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. You're like, I wanted to be with you again, but not quite this close. Right. Like this is not how my fantasies went. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, so Aaron, like I absolutely was thinking the same thing and thinking back to like times where uh, you know sometimes my husband and I would spend like months apart on trials yeah and so excited and then yeah you come back and you're like like everything's awkward you know yeah. like yeah. literally everything and so I think you know and that's not dealing with uh, all of the trauma and horrible right Cassie gave was alone and gave birth and her their son taken away and Cole just killed his brother like mm-hmm. it's horrible um so what the direction le- from which they're coming at this huge matter, like her on one side, having had Ethan and spent all that time and being alone. And like, though she went through trauma, like all she had to do was think and mm-hmm. him on the other side, having like the opportunity to be so active. And he was like mad dogging after her and then found out, you know, in this horrific way and then freaking killed Ramsey. And it's like, they've both had these, these experiences that are so polar opposite. I think mm-hmm. where they are right now without having like that, that tangible moment of Ethan that's coming up pretty soon, there's no way either one of them can remotely understand the position from which the other is speaking. I was just thinking like, you know, also I think to me, like that moment later in the episode when Cassie gives uh, Cole the watch in that moment that reads to me, you know, that like, I think a lot of Cassie's sort of fears there are like, you know, very much about sort of physical separation, but also a kind of sense of like, trying to bridge the emotional separation that they're both aware of, you know, that sense of like, I'm going to give you this watch. If you have this, we will always find each other. And I think that kind of like sense of finding each other is very much both sort of about like, as long as you have this, you will, I will always like actually like physically see you again, but also like we will always, we will always find our way back to each other despite whatever sort of distance has, has opened up between us emotionally. Right. Mm-hmm. We'll connect. Yeah. And it's all her, also her making a move that she did not ever allow herself to make, except for at the end of season two when they were at the house of Cedar and Pine. So even after all that has done, you know, has happened and he's undone their life and he didn't trust her with it. And even though she understands he was trying to protect her, it's something she would have wanted to know. And like, there's all those things that are going on specifically between them, even outside the Aethan issue. I think mm-hmm. that she's using like, she kind of uses different points and different conversations in this episode to like bear herself a little bit more. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. And, and, you know, Cole, like not telling her about the life that he erased. I think that's also for her as a moment of sort of like Cole is a t- Cole keeps trying to like shut himself away from her emotionally a little bit. And I think this is her sort of like again and again, trying to say like, no, I don't want, you know, you think that you're protecting me, but I want to like, I want us both to be sort of open and raw together. Um, right. But given rather, how little she's done that in the past, yeah, I feel like no. she's she's saying not only do I want that, but I'm willing to be the one that that takes the first step this time. Yeah, that's right? a good point. Which yeah. is so which is so different. Like if you think about all the ways that they have flipped roles versus season two, 
the last time they came together after a separation, right? Like, not only is Cassie the one that's more hopeful and Cole is the one that is more, like, for lack of a better word, pessimistic um, about Ethan and about everything, right? Like, Cole's the one saying we're stuck in a loop, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, that's going to flip again at the beginning of season four, um, where Cassie's going to come back at the end of 45 RPM and be like, we're stuck in a loop. And Cole's like, no, I know how we can get out of it. But exactly that, like... She's the one that keeps reaching out over and over again emotionally for intimacy. And he's not like, it's not like he's shutting it down, but like he's deflecting, like, right? Like, he doesn't want to, like, he's being honest, right? Like, when they're in the car, it's not like when she says, would you ever have told me about it, that he tells her what she wants to hear. He's mm-hmm. like, you didn't need to know. Like, there's honesty. It's hard to hear, right? Like, she's crying. Um, but, you know, like, it, it's not – it's it's interesting to watch how they have flipped. And it, abso- it, it makes it dynamic. It makes it interesting to watch. But it also is in a way that is totally grounded in – what their individual characters have been through. Just like mm-hmm. it was at the beginning of season two, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and even um, with all the enormity and the nonsense and the crazy sci-fi, it's also grounded in reality. Mm-hmm. In right. the way that couples interact and what people really go through. And, oh my God, I know it's so boring and one of them should die, but... <laughs> <laughs> right. No, it's so it's true to that, I think. Yeah, I know, I agree. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, this show, I know that we've said it a lot on this podcast, but, like, <laughs> since there were, you know, uh, lots of shows that don't seem to think, particularly lately, that, like, a couple together makes for compelling drama, like, watch this show. Mm-hmm. Because <laughs> there's no question, there's no question in this episode or this season or the next one that Cassie and Cole love one another. That's not where the drama comes from, right? There's no love triangle. There's no, oh, did their feelings change over the separation? There's none of that. But there's still, like, these are quiet scenes of two people talking to one another. And it's still compelling because it's like, that's what the rest of us have. Like, you know, not the big scale stuff. But it's what the rest of us have to deal with, right? right? Like, right. Mm-hmm. so There's um, always a push and pull. It's just that push and pull doesn't center around a... Will they, won't they? Like, Mm -hmm. that's not the only way to do that. Right. Yeah. Um, I really, I like it. I like how it shifts from Cassie being like, well, we've been in smaller places before. Like, remember the bed that squeaks, right? (laughs) (laughs) And he's all record scratch. Like, uh, wait a minute. You know about that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's both like them reconnecting, but it's also letting everyone know like not only Cole but also the audience like this Cassie remembers everything (laughs) you know like (laughs) the last time they had a chance to talk about that it was just her remembering like the butterfly of Titan right like he's I mean he's probably spent the last year wondering what she actually fully remembers so right right um once they get out of the car and Cassie's trying like you can't take this all on yourself it's not your fault um it's a really, like, this episode and the next, epi- like, this run of episodes, It's I think it's kind of like the, what did Sarah call it last week? The belly of the whale. Like, for Cole's character arc, he is in a bad place <laughs> for these next, this next episode. Like, the next episode, he's going to tell Jennifer, I just want it all to be over. Yeah. 
Um, so when he, what he is describing of himself is like, you didn't know me before. We killed people for nothing. I, I just killed the one conscious I ever had. Um, and if there's something wrong with him, it, he got it from me. And it's just like, oh, it's like, I think Aaron Stanford nails these kinds of scenes where Cole has a lot of, you know, pathos and is struggling with stuff, but it's also just like, you know, like... It's a necessary step along his journey, but it's pretty awful if you think that you're such a horrible person that, like, if somebody was going to end the world, they got it from you. Oh, oh yeah. man. Well, I mean, consider Ugh. the totality of his journey, right? Let's go right back to the pilot and even, you know, all of season one and before he really got into the witness stuff. The whole purpose of this was not I mean, not the purpose in of itself, but the, the entire outcome of this was that Cole would be erased. This Cole that we know right now, he would be erased because everything would be reset. So he knew that everything he was doing was going to end, you know, in in his non-existence. And now, like, add on to that, that, like, the whole fucking thing has been your fault and you are affecting so many more people and not only people that you've just been shooting your whole freaking life and not only a random, like, 7 billion that we've talked about before, every single person that you love and that is around you, the world will be falling apart because of you. So the idea of what he's been working toward on his forgiveness, redemption, like everything up to this point, I mean, that is erased and then some. Mm, Yeah. That's awful. Yeah. I mean, and the other thing about it, though, that's so interesting is they're having this... um, this conversation is about nature, right? Um, and Cole being like, basically what he's not saying is like, look, he didn't get it from you. He got it from me. What we will come to find out when we watch Thief is that Ethan was in some ways formed like nurture unknowingly by Cassie and Cole because of the two moments he happened to choose to visit his parents in their like respective timelines. And, you know, obviously there's a lot more things that are going to happen and and there's more nurture in this story that ultimately is what turns Ethan around. But I think it's so interesting that it's like they don't think that they've had any nurture impact on their son at all. And yet that moment with the snow globe with Cole or at the hospital with Cassie where she calls time a thief mm-hmm. had enormous impact on their son. Mm-hmm. Right. So like. There, they did have these nurture moments that they had no idea about. And here Cole is beating himself up, thinking that it's like his genetic, like something genetic that he passed on, you know? Like, yeah, whereas sort of like- in reality, the same way they've been looking for Ethan, like throughout his own history, be it in past or present, he's been seeking them out as well to try to understand who they are or who they were and how that's going to play into who he has to become. Yeah. Um, it's just really good. It's just really good scenes. And they let them have a lot of them. And it's just the two of them talking. And I just really appreciate it. Like, (laughs) especially given such a complicated plot. Um, the one, um, I think it's interesting. And I think it shows us where Cole is at. Um, when she says, you're a good man, I wouldn't have fallen in love with you if you weren't. It's clear that Cole hears it, but he doesn't respond. And it's kind of the same way at the end when she gives him the watch and she's like, and he, you know, he kind of pulls her in and gives her the hug, but it's like, it's, 
it, at least it seems to me that it's like, it's not that he's closed down, but I don't think she, what she's saying is necessarily getting through to him right now because of where he's at, like emotionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Does I don't think he believes sure. it. I think he thinks, you know, like, well, of course she's going to say that, but, you know, I don't think he can believe it. Yeah. Um, well, because in, in, in a way, it's like, I mean, and even though he doesn't fully obviously understand what she went through and actually probably knows very little about it, he he on his side, I'm certain, thinks, like, you don't know what I've seen, you don't know what I've done, you don't know what I found out, like, while you were gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that none of this can be true. And especially <laughs> when they throw that back in, you know, at the end of, like, like you said before, Aaron, about, you know, it's kind of a causality thing. Like she gives him the watch. And on the one hand, he kind of accepts it as like, oh, that, you know, I appreciate that. I get what you're doing. And on the other hand, he's like, I've already seen myself wearing this. Like, was it a choice <laughs> or like you just trying to make myself feel better? But the interesting thing I thought in that context, which it doesn't necessarily play into this in any way, it just kind of stuck in my head as like an interesting part of the whole loop is knowing that that future Cassie is standing there at that scene as well. Oh, wow. yeah. I mean, that's, that's right. The, yeah. That's the added, right? It's like she's hearing him say something that she told him before. Right. <laughs> to his, yeah, like breaks your brain. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do, I do love that, like, you know, they've got a lot of stuff to deal with. And yet they still give us these moments, like, there's a lot of comedy when he has to like interact with the um, security guards, right? Like it's um, uh, Detective Morrison. Yeah, it's just, oh yeah, it's like he's always Morris Morrison. Morris Morrison. <laughs> Morris um, and he's just uh, it's so great. Like I, you know, you will beep. You watched Nikita. It's like I watching that scene. I'm like, oh my god, there's like a little bit of like Burkoff humor, like yeah. peeking through there. But you know. I love that they're like battle couple again, right? And so even though they're dealing with all of this ridiculous stuff that they have on their plate and they're talking about things that like would probably like break most people in terms of like what they're dealing with with their son, you still have those moments where you've, you know, you have Cole saying, good to have you back, right? Like you still feel like, you know, they're maybe, they're not on the same page with everything, obviously, but like, on a certain level, they are still okay with one another. But this is the first time since, um, I mean, since all the way through season two that, because even when you think about the, you know, the time of their happiness, there like was no mission anymore. So mm-hmm. since the very end of season one, this is the same time or, or the first time that they're not only on the same mission side, but they're also on each other's side. That's yeah. true. Does that make yeah. sense? Like how those are yeah, two yeah. different things? Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, definitely. Right. It's also really, really, I think, um, Aaron, going to your point about the way they argue about retracing the steps twice. Um, And I mean, like, okay, honey, but like, where's the, right? It's like, I feel like it's like, but I put my keys in my purse, but honey, they're not in your purse, right? Like that. I know they're not in my purse. I'm trying to figure it out. Don't help me. (laughs) Exactly. Like, how can just, uh, I'll find them. But, um, it, it's just like, uh, I don't know, like lack of a better word, like high emotional IQ writing. Because this is, even though we only saw snippets of it, this is a Cassie and Cole that live together as romantic partners in the House of Cedar and Pine who celebrated Christmas together, right? And went to jobs and like all of that. And so 
letting them have that kind of banter, it, it it's like a, a touch point for that. You know, you're like, okay, so they were separate. Like, this is also Cassie and Cole that were like, you know, living together for months. So even though we didn't see yeah, that and they, on camera. They do feel they, they have a kind of like lived in dynamic and even the sort of like... That, that, like, battle couple, good to have you back moment. It, you know, that feels like a sort of, like, one of those moments where they find themselves unexpectedly in sync. You know, there's a certain kind of, like, mm-hmm. we've been sort of off kilter, but, like, we still got this. You know, like, this there's a sort of reminder, like, there's that there's that underlying sort of connection that is still there, even if other things are kind of a little bit dissonant right now. You know, like, we still, like, when it counts, they're still in sync. Yeah, there's right. a, there's a bit of shifting sands, and they're both trying to find their footing, but every now and mm-hmm. then they're they're in step with one another. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, it's kind of hilarious too. Like, given you know, like the comedy of how out of step Cassie is with um, Jennifer. Uh, you know, as like <laughs> pretending to be her assistant, where like that whole like like the disaster that is them trying to have the conversation with the auction, you know, because like they're just like like Cassie and Jennifer are like they are not on the same wavelength as far as this mission goes, you know, like Jen, like like Cassie is like almost like way too serious for it. She's like, we have an objective. I'm going to ask about the objective, and then it's like, turns out that was a mistake. <laughs> like now you accidentally <laughs> changed the timeline. But yeah, so the sort of like hilarity of like trying to watch like Cassie who just like straight up does not get what Jennifer is doing <laughs> in this mission. Like she is like like Cassie is does not is not like vibing with the like, you know, like like fun romp heist vibe that Jennifer has going. Um, no. versus kind of like the way that she's like slides right back into, you know, like mission mode with Cole, I think is really amusing. Yeah. All right. So our final pair. <laughs> I know it's the one that you guys are super excited about. <laughs> Deacon and Jennifer. Pure comedic gold. These these two are. My God. All right. <laughs> Let's just start off with uh, the two security guards who I think I forgot to look it up. I think that they're they have like a they're like a comedy skit duo or something from like another show. Um, oh, really? That get. Yeah, the guest starred on this, and I'm uh, drawing a blank on who they are. Huh. Um, but what, yeah, first, um, the whole Bugsy Seagal, I hear Warren Beatty's going to do a film, which <laughs> Bug- Bugsy did come out in 1991. So in 80, you know, in 89, that'd be the gossip. Um, thoughts on that? For Any thoughts on that, like, first back and forth? I prefer Dick Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> As do I. That's As do I. i did i laugh really hard probably hard like i may be the person that laughs the hardest but like i grew up obviously as i was saying before outside of new york and then i went to college in the southeast and i had no fucking idea what cotillion was either (laughs) (laughs) i grew up in the south and i didn't know what it was either oh my god all i can tell you is it would be something i would not go to that's that was oh yes that i knew i have like I, a college roommate which oh, like oh yeah i have cotillion and i'm like what is that she's like oh it's when i deb and i'm like well what's that it's like oh deb isn't be a debutante i'm like that's a verb to deb <laughs> what yeah <laughs> i also had no idea that this was still a thing that people actually did until i became a professor in mississippi 
And I also had students who were like, oh, I have to go home this weekend for my Debbie shot. And I'm like, what? Is that what now? Like, what, are you, still, are you also still a thing? Still oh, a sure. thing. Still a thing. And they're like multiple Absolutely. of them. And I'm like, are you also traveling back in time? But the, like, the truth is that like everything in Mississippi is kind of back in time. But uh, it's yeah, true. it's, it's a thing. Oh, yeah. It's, I've also had beauty queen students, which is also like just bizarre to me. Like, not that I, I knew that beauty queens like existed in the world, obviously, but it's just like. It was one of those things where it's like, you know that they exist, but still feels kind of fake until you actually like meet a person who is one. And then you're like, oh, that's, huh. I guess yeah, I just it's thought like that a reality like, show or that cute movie yeah. Dumplin', but that's right, like the right. <laughs> true existence. Right, exactly. Oh it's like, so I, yeah. Yeah, I had a weird. girl on my freshman, I had a girl in my freshman hall who was from Alabama, had to go home to Montgomery after exams our freshman year and she would be like studying and then she'd take a break and she'd have to practice curtsying to touch her forehead all the way down to her shin are you kidding me the one like no and so we would like cheer her on because it was a big thing to like not lose your balance in heels and on the other hand i'm like oh my god like i grew up a mets fan and i don't know what the fuck is going on that's just (laughs) I don't even know how to explain this, but if it lands with you, it lands. Like, that just reminds me of Ichabod Crane. (laughs) Like, I feel like that's the only person tall enough and lanky enough to bend that way. I just, like, I'm just, like, picturing, like, a marionette if you just, like, cut the strings and then it sort of collapses down onto the ground. Like, that's... That's perfect. Yeah. (laughs) But I... I love that these two security guards who are debating what a number three versus a number four are, and that they did it at LaGuardia Airport, know what a cotillion is. <laughs> well, they do work at an auction house, you know, like they, they, they get oh, like culture true. through osmosis, right? I mean, the one the yeah, one guard right. definitely has opinions about the art, right? Like when the, when Constance uh-huh. comes in, he's he's like, he knows something. He wanted that particular security guard job for a reason, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we forgot to mention, which I'm sure like lots of fans have already picked up on this, but Constance, who we see in this painting, we will see at the ball in masks. Um, oh. And the camera linger on her. Yeah, we mm. will see the real life Constance in masks. Um, She's, all right. So I feel like Constance is what like people, I think, I feel like Constance is what people used to call back in the day a gimlet like gimlet face, you know, just like Wait. very like maybe nobody knows what that means. <laughs> nope. If that's not a drink, is it isn't a gimlet a drink? It is a it is a drink, but it was also like a thing, like a, a descriptor for a very severe looking older woman. I think you'll find it in like if you read like, you know, Anne of Green Gables. Something like that. Ah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's Aaron's uh. dispatches from like two hundred years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Then that takes us to the auction. Um, whoever the actress is who plays the woman who works at the auction house is is fantastic. Like her, like what the fuck is going on with Deacon and Jennifer? I'm sorry, Deacon is Monty in this scene. Monty, right? yes, that's, that's, that's also a great reaction. Okay. Um, I'm Monty. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my gosh, Todd Stashwick is so funny in this episode. Um, I love that Jennifer says she's having major deja vu because now I I assume it didn't happen before or it did happen. I'm not like trying to parse this out, but like the four year old version of her was there. And I'm not Mm -hmm, sure if that's mm -hmm. because like that we didn't see Jennifer's nosebleed, but like 
I, yeah, so I don't know how that works, but, like, she's, I love that they're, like, letting you know that, like, we're about to see, like, young Jennifer, and then the line that, like, is so fucking great is when Olivia walks in looking like Sigourney Weaver from Working Girl's <laughs> Best Friend, you have, you have Deacon Turon, holy shit, it's Gosher. <laughs> <laughs> she does look like Gosher the Gosarian. It's true. <laughs> I know. <laughs> And the fact that she's dressed like Sigourney Weaver is just like an added layer of <laughs> fun for me. Um, when Jennifer is bidding like a crazy person um, for everything, <laughs> I feel like I heard a fan on another tw- on um, on Caged Monkeys talk about how all the numbers are prime numbers. Oh, Did yeah. You guys pick up on that. I guess like three. What the was number three, item three, three, that she's bidding on, or her pricing, everything, or everything? No, no, the, or, no. or the number she's holding up, her bidding number. Is that three three seven? Yeah, that's probably prime. That's prime. I, I would imagine the lot numbers are prime. Oh, the, the what the number she's bidding are round numbers, so those can't be prime. But like sure. maybe the lot number. Yeah, I mean, it sounded like she's bidding on everything to well, me. Well, yeah. Though, so I don't. I mean, her her paddle, yeah, three three seven likely is. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, because that seven is gonna jack some stuff up. But um, but yeah, that would be the only one. Yeah. Um. So then you have the surprise guest star of Leland Goines. We haven't seen Leland Goines since season one. That's like, I'm so happy to see someone that I think is such an asshole, but I am, because I think the actor is great. The actor is awesome. has two cell phones. I can't with that bullshit. (laughs) They're enormous. They're enormous cell phones. I love it. And I love his, his assistant with like her giant 80s glasses. Um, Those like, like, like saucer sized glasses. My mom had those. She also, my mom also had a a perm like his assistant did. (laughs) And if you think about it, this is probably when he's really starting to get into some of his like research and stuff. Cause this is only two years after he acquired the corpse. Yeah. When you hear his conversation is shady as shit. Oh yeah. He's like, yes, I'm, I'm a, I'm a family man. And I understand how that has leverage. Oh, for sure. What are you doing? Are you like holding some family hostage? He's or getting scientists, someone? man. Yeah. 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 Um, and then you have, you know, Jennifer with Olivia and Olivia being like, do I know you? And Jennifer's like, not if I can help it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like I'm sure a lot of this is writing, but you wonder how much is like Emily Hampshire and, and Todd Stashrick also like ad libbing stuff back and forth. Um and I love that, like, little Jennifer, who is so thrilled that there's a robbery that she thinks it's fun. <laughs> She's the best. Is also scared of Olivia when Olivia waves. Yes. Yeah. It's such a great detail. Jennifer you know, always has the best yeah, instincts. dude's waving you know? a gun. How hilarious. But, yeah. Whoa, who the fuck is this chick? But Jennifer knows, you know, like, she's one of those people, she's got the instincts. Like, she knows mm-hmm. always, well, can always tell, like, he's got a gun, but he's not actually gonna, like, out to hurt anybody. But, like... Olivia, that bitch, she wants dear Claire. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and if you think about it, this, like, it, this, as they indicated specifically earlier in the episode, is before her mother started to drown her or tried to drown her and everything became, like, chaotic and almost like, um, like a schizophrenic type thing. So I mm-hmm. would actually think at this point in her life, without understanding it, she would be much more in tune with her primariness. That's true, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, this is like the little four-year-old Jennifer that was drawing all of those pictures that were in her room. Right. Yeah. Along with her My Little Pony. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It was by the pool. So my personal favorite line and line delivery is when Deacon stands up on the chair and says, this is a robbery. Finally. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So good. It's like the whole reason they're there is to steal something. And yeah. <laughs> you know, like how bored Deacon was just sitting there like, oh, my God, like just watching this stupid old shit roll up. <laughs> yeah. Talking to constantly talking about his boss who's on the sauce. I mean, it's just yeah. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> so I want to hear both. I'm going to say the two these two lines and then I like I just want you guys to like unpack it. Um the first line that is like a dagger in my heart because of the way that it's said in such an offhand way that you know that it was said all the time to her is when Leland Goins turns to little Jennifer and says, Christ, can't you just be normal for once? Oh, God. Mm. It's just such a fucking horrible thing for a parent to say to a kid. I wanted someone to crush his trachea. Like specifically oh, yeah. that. Yeah. Just, you almost that was like-, like my instinct. You almost want to go back and, like, watch the scene of Cole shooting him in the head at that moment just to be, like, you know, like, he eventually gets what he deserves. Yeah. (laughs) It's just such, you know, it's, like, such a everyday put down. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's something that you can hear a parent saying in real life or, like, I've seen parents say to their kids. Either, like, you know, like, it's, ugh. But then you've got... That unbelievable Deacon moment. Well, hold on, hold on. To, yeah, to expound on that. Yeah, do. I, and I will. I'll take a little bit of leeway here, just enough to hang myself. Um, <laughs> it's not exactly the same, but speaking as someone who who has struggled with depression for most of their life, and knowing that I, even though hers is not meant to be that, there's so many characteristics with which, obviously, Jennifer is compared to having a mental illness. I often remember hearing, and and obviously they weren't meant with the same vitriol. I mean, he's just the fucking worst. But I often remember hearing, like, cheer up. You're unappreciative. Like, you have nothing to be unhappy about. You have, you know, these types of things that were thrown at someone who, like, has no control over the fact that their brain is just jacked up. And those things, they land, man. And, And it becomes ingrained into you and i know that you know even (laughs) women get upset with the um you know smile more but you get that kind of thing i mean i was depressed from a very young age and and it was always those kind of comments of like that that constantly undermined or underscored the fact that like yeah you're you're like just not quite right and i feel like you're just not trying hard enough to be right yeah. And it hits you like all the so much harder when it's from a parent than from anyone else. Absolutely. Because, you know, especially when you're when you're really young, you know, the things that your parents say, they're just like they are like your parents like tell you how the universe works. You know, yep. you don't you don't you're not when you're a kid, you're, you're not capable of just not believing what your parents say the way that you are with just like, a you know, a, a a random person you know as an adult, even if it's like a close friend, you know, like right. just the weight of truth to anything that your parents tell you when a, you're a kid, something like that is just so devastating. Yeah. And because everything your parents say up to a certain point 
has to be true because otherwise, how do you develop a worldview? Exactly. Also, like, how do you survive? Like, you, like, when you're a little, like, you know, on some level, like, your survival depends on this person, you know? Like, like, you have to believe what they say is true because everything in your universe depends on that, you know? And you, like, you aren't yet old enough to be able to sort of, like, have separation from their worldview, from their universe. And so it's just like, you just internalize it, you know? And so, right. so whether they're uh, indicating directly or indirectly, or whether the intention was there or not, they are conveying a message, that same message of like, you're not normal. Yeah, exactly. And that is that it, it lands then and it, continues to do so for a very very long time yeah i mean that line is like a slap in the face like i you know like like almost physically you know like i recoil at that line yeah it's very uh there's something deep in the gut that is uh that um is i don't even know what i'm saying okay bye (laughs) but i think but i think like it makes it even more like you know, and I think you're probably like, yeah, I might be stealing your thunder, CC. But like the moment a little bit later when Jennifer calls the four year old her egg and she calls her mm-hmm. chicken back, you know, the sort of callback to old Jennifer, you know, and young Jennifer talking to each other in season two and the sort of like, I love you, I love you, egg, I love you, chicken. You know, the fact that Jennifer later in life can look at herself and say, I love you, like mm-hmm. starting with her dad being like, Christ, Jennifer, can't you be normal for once? And then getting to a point where, like, even with everything that's happened to her, she could look at herself and say, I love you is just, like, like, that really gets me, you know? Like, that's the kind of, like, that's the kind of thing where it's, like, that 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 horrible, horrible moment with her father and then knowing the horrible things that her mother is going to do to herself, you know? Like, what makes Jennifer, one of the things that makes Jennifer such a meaningful character to me, you know, as somebody, like, Beeply, you know, I've also... Um, you struggled with like depression and anxiety and, and PTSD through my life. Um, one thing that makes her so meaningful is that she is a character who's been through all that and still can look at herself and say, tell herself, I love you and mean it and mean it. Yeah. Like I can't always do that. You know, like there's times when if I was, if there was another version of me standing in front of me, I couldn't say, I love you and mean it, you know? So the fact that she can is just like, like, I'd rather punch her. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, so it just it does kind of feel like like there's hope. You know what I mean? Like you are not like your your damage is not your destiny. Mm, right. That's a good which, line. Yeah, which Aaron, I love also because you know what we're going around and around on nurture versus nature. Right. Exactly. What that, what that leaves out is like your own free will and the choices you make for yourself. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, there's part of us that is, like, things that we were born with, that things we're good at and things that we're bad at, different things that we can handle well emotionally, different things we can in terms of stress or pain, right, that that maybe have to do, like, physically with who we are. And then there's obviously all of the things, all the experiences that we have uh, growing up with our parents or from different relationships that we have in our life. But Jennifer's story, like Ethan's, right, is that there's still room for for personal choice Mm -hmm. to to make your those own decisions for yourself, right? And that's not to negate all of the very strong influences and things that have to do with nature and nurture. But yeah, right? Like, that's, which is sort of like the point, um, like, I don't want to skip over the deacon scene. But you know, maybe we can just close the loop on Jennifer because then when you have adult Jennifer talking to her father um, and, you know, 
that scene that they have is another one of those scenes where every line has two meanings Mm -hmm. Um, with like, um, you know, I'm going to have you locked up. And obviously that's a double meaning. Um, But Jennifer's line, but I'm going to survive. And my life is so much bigger now. And one day you're going to die. And that will be the day she really starts to live. Yeah. And I feel like that's getting at like that kind of third piece that is beyond nature or nurture that has to do with like our own individual choices. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also like a kind of an awesome, like sort of like she gets to, you know, strike back. Like if saying like, if Christ, why can't you be normal? It's a terrible thing to say to your daughter, but like as the daughter, so getting to come back and someday be like the day you die is the day I start to live. Like, that's a pretty nice retort to get to get to get to have, yeah. you know. <laughs> Even if he doesn't understand it, it's yeah, okay. it's okay, you know, just to sort of be like, you know, what I really need to be happy, Dad. I need you to fucking die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. In this case, that's a, it's a very valid desire. Absolutely, absolutely. Did you guys well, find and it? The thing- Go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, so the thing is that, you know, when Cassie was in the car saying, like, we can use the time machine to, like, help you personally, right? Mm-hmm. The this The side effect or, like, the unintended consequence of Jennifer's mission is that she gets – she gets to say that to her father's face mm-hmm. and she gets to say that in front of her younger self, mm-hmm. even though that was never her intention. It was never for that like personal motivation, but she, she gets that personal, like, you know, like that moment of strength and being able to say that to her father, which you could only get uh, by virtue of a time machine, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though that was never her intent of the mission yeah. like, in the first yeah. place. She does get some kind of closure there. Yeah. Um, if we can, if we like sort of close the loop on the Leland Goins part of it. Although I do love the like comedic, like the comedy of of Daddy's locked up, <laughs> like she's not going to open the door. <laughs> so okay. great. In so you many know. instances, that would be annoying as shit. But here, it's just like, yeah, that's on par. <laughs> yeah, or when Jennifer knocks out the um. And man, she really smacks I know. Sculptor. She hit that, I know. Like, that woman might be dead. I was, I was like, that too. I was like, shit, you might have just killed somebody. <laughs> but I love that she's like, Miss Scarlet with the candlestick in the library. <laughs> like she's narrating it from Clue. Okay, so this leads me to, because I loved that game growing up. <laughs> me too. And that so movie. What that was movie. your favorite combo? Oh. I always, um, I always liked uh, Miss Scarlet. She was definitely my character that I always wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, Who was the older dude? I definitely had an affinity for Colonel Mustard. Yes, <laughs> Colonel Mustard. Me too. Great. And my room was the conservatory. Bitches. Oh yes. Okay, I think I always liked that one what? too because I did not know what a conservatory was. I was like, Is that where you have a cotillion? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Maybe, maybe. I don't see why not. <laughs> they do in Little Women, actually, don't they? <laughs> I'm sure they do, or a conservatory. Yeah, I th- I was just fascinated by that room because I was like, that's not a thing. I feel like that's definitely where you should kill people. I still don't know what a conservatory is. Like, what? It's in Little Women. I'm just reading isn't it to it my more, daughter. Isn't it kind of like an atrium? Like it's an open? Oh, maybe. It's a warm, it's like a warm, I'm trying to think. I just read this to, I'm reading Little Women to my oldest and they went to Lori's conservatory and it was like warm mm. with plants. Oh, so it's like yeah, kind of like a like greenhouse-y a, sort of thing. Right, but it's like in the house. Like it's kind of like a 
sunroom, no? Like okay. the the ceiling is like glass. Okay. For, for really rich people well, a long for time ago. Sure. Yeah. I yeah. believe that like in the Middle Ages I think they called a solarium, which actually makes a lot more sense than a conservatory. Because like what are you conserving? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because solarium yeah. like is sun, right? Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, who knows? That's weird. Anyways, <laughs> that's where you should murder people. It's easier to clean up. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get that clear it's dark man all right so we can't wait, wait, wait. i have one thing okay. one thing because yeah, i saw yeah. you already crossed it out did what were y'all's thoughts if you had any that peaked right up when jennifer said you know okay egg and the young jennifer responded okay chicken what did, what did you think about that exchange i thought it was cute you know that that like I don't know. It's something about sort of like this is consistently the way that Jennifer's brain always works, you know, that she will always like sort of complete that analogy. I don't know. I liked it. She get that at you meaning, meaning the reason why she said chicken and egg ever in the first place is because she got it from four year old her. No, no, I I was thinking she knew it was her. Oh, yeah, I could see that. I mean, I guess for me, I just thought it was like, like any Jennifer anyway, like not like a loop thing, just sort of like, yeah. Like, that she's just always going to, like, she's just always going to, if you set up an analogy like that, you know, she's always going to finish it. But, like, I don't know, you know, like, four-year-old Jennifer is a primary, so who knows? Like, maybe she is, like, not consciously, but, like, unconsciously. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, I just, I just kind of got this weird impression that even, like you said, not necessarily consciously, like, even if it were just a... One of her primary gut feelings, like I felt like mm. she knew who yeah. she was. Yeah, that yeah, I that would make a lot of sense. I could see that. So the Deacon and Jennifer moment, which I think is so powerful for both of them, which obviously has to do with everything else we've been talking about, is when Deacon leans into little Jennifer and says, Your dad, you know, I'm gonna tell you something important. Your dad is an asshole. Never forget that. Tell me your thoughts, because it has as much, obviously, as much to do with Jennifer as it does for Deacon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, like, there is a part of me that wonders if, like, in a sort of loopy sort of way, like, again, not that that Jennifer consciously remembers that moment or, like, even recognizes Deacon later, but but something about, like, like, that's part of where the bond comes from. I mean, like, obviously, there's a bond there of, like, they're two people with, like, super shitty dads, which is, like... Speaking as someone with a shitty dad, like, you can bond with people over, like, mutual shitty daddom. But, um, (laughs) but if, like, some part of her remembers that, you know, that, that he was the guy who sort of, like, gave her permission the first time to have that little bit of distance between her and her father, you know, or sort of, like, the next time he said, Leland said something really mean to her, like some part of her brain went, he's an asshole. That's, you know, Mm -hmm. like, he's not right. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily true. He's an asshole. I think Deacon uh, lit a bit of a fire in her. Yeah, I think so. A part of which, you know, still, still Still burns. burns. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps a flame for him. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're writing the beginning of a very beautiful uh, fanfic, although there are some sort of like age difference issues that... Yikes. Might make some people uh, a little uncomfortable, I suppose. <laughs> you can work through those in fanfic. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, it's a fucking time travel. They don't show. actually like get to be friends until they're both well into their adulthood, so it's fine. <laughs> um. So then, obviously, everything the episode ends with this reveal that Jennifer chose 
to protect Cassie and Cole um, over letting everybody know about Ethan. Um, and that moment, and a lot of it, there's very few lines. So it's really just like the facial acting with Emily Hampshire. And I think in particular, Amanda Scholl. And when she says, I'm sure they were dealing with a lot. And the way that she smiles at them, it's like such, it's such a beautiful scene. And it's such a beautiful choice, even as if, as we've talked before, it's going to be problematic um, for the team and the plot. Tell me what you guys think about Jennifer's choice to do that in that moment. I think that that choice is 100% consistent with the totality of who Jennifer is. Oh, absolutely. I can't see Jennifer ever doing anything else. Yeah. We've talked so many times about how at her core, Jennifer loves people so deeply. Mm-hmm. And she is mm-hmm. so empathetic. And I think that to for her to find that out, to the extent that she can... She understands the weight of what they have just, you know, determined themselves. And I think that she loves both of them so much and trusts both of them so much mm-hmm. that she allows them to go through that process in the way that they have chosen to. Because just like outing people is not who she is. Jennifer also, like, Jennifer is a character who will always choose uh, the people that she loves over the mission. Like, Correct. always. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So there's I, even there's not a universe in which Jennifer would ever make a different decision there. Nope. Even though what I think is so interesting about it is Jennifer choosing the people she loves and, and choosing to save people ends up being what saves all of them. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, like, she's going to save Cassie and Cole at the end of the ball. She's obviously going to save Ethan in the finale. And what I think is interesting is, even though we're in a moment of division and secrets, and Jennifer sort of temporarily being pitted against the rest of the team by siding with Cassie and Cole, Cassie and Cole are keeping a secret, and they think that they can do this alone. Mm-hmm. And even in this episode, the lesson is they can't. Mm -hmm, They needed somebody else's help, you know? And so it's, uh, you know, it's kind of like a teaser. Like, they're not all, even at the end of this season, even at the end of, like, the actual series, going to be able to pull this off until they're all truly working together. Mm -hmm. Which I, like, thematically, I love, right? To the point where they have to, like, resurrect people from the dead. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know like right right yeah just to get you on the same fucking team we gotta bring you back from the dead exactly like, look at ramsey even in death he's being such a dramatic hoe <laughs> ramsey was always the most dramatic hoe like really honestly is. like that's his whole thing forget like you know like my son like it was really just about being a dramatic hoe for sure <laughs> You know, the, the one thing that, that I kind of just thought of in, in the context of all this, because it's, I know that it's said multiple times, it's said in the context of like, you know, not forgetting the love, it's said in the context kind of of like Ethan not being able to be raised, you know, when they say uh, death can be undone, love cannot. But if you think about it, what you were just saying with how Jennifer always goes with who she loves and like all of her decisions are based on love and like her love and the way that she makes those choices is what saves so many of them. Like 
it's also just kind of that unstoppable force. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's ultimately why Olivia loses. Mm -hmm. Like, the one thing she can't grasp or account for or, like, truly, like, assess the risk accurately is, like, human emotion and love. Human connection. I mean, even looking at the way that she talks to Cassie and Cole about, you know, them, them discovering that they were the parents of the witness, like, she's sort of taunting them, you know, and she's this moment of sort of, like, bitter triumph of, like, yeah, now you know, like, now you know the reason that we were never allowed to just eliminate you is because, like, all of this is because of you. And, like, the thing that she doesn't get there, you know, even as she's taunting them, the, the level of this this thing that's happened that she will never understand is that, like, at the end of the day, Ethan is the product of love. Like, this, like, he's this, like, paradox that came into being. All she sees him is, like, a chess piece, you know, this child born mm-hmm. out of time. Born out of time because of love, you know? And, like, and, like that's the thing that, like... That, like, and, like, she can't understand, you know, like, she's she's sort of taunting them about that. And, like, she can't understand that, like, Cassie loves this child. Like, that's, she just is incapable of comprehending, like, yeah, love. Yeah, Olivia is playing a long con strategy in an extremely complicated game. But ultimately, she's playing the wrong game. Yes, yes. Right. Because the love, the two people she's talking to, if you think about the way that scene actually, and I hadn't thought about it this way, Aaron, until you brought that up, you have this scene of them being face to face with Olivia, right? And it's 305. And she's like, you know, we're united in purpose, you know, find, find your son. And what she's not counting on is that Cassie and Cole are going to choose to love their son. Mm-hmm. And that love, in turn, is what is going to inspire Ethan, who reciprocates it, who will come back and return <laughs> as, quote unquote, the witness, and and temporarily fuck up all of her plans. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody will get away, which is how they're ultimately able to defeat her. So it's kind of great that you have this face-off and you've got Cassie and Cole and it totally seems like they're, you know, on the ropes, right? And that and that ultimately that that piece that you're talking about about love is what she's not calculating and that is what is going to ruin her plan this season in addition to more. Yeah. And you can even see it in the sort of way that they in the in the episodes leading up to this one, the sort of introduction of um of the four horsemen and the and the sort of time traveling nanny thing we're like originally like this is sort of presented to us as, a, as like a weapon like the way that they talk about the witnesses like you know they're carrying around in this sort of like thing that looks like it's like a, a vault for a bomb or something you know like everyone all of all of the monkeys and olivia are looking at this like this this child as a weapon like this is the thing that was we just have to like get it to adulthood and then it's gonna like you know, like bring about the end times. And the thing that they miss is that it's a baby and it's somebody's baby. You know, it's somebody's child. Like that's the part they can't calculate. Um, Which I mean, it makes sense for Olivia who was like grown in a Petri dish, you know what I mean? And like raised in a box. Like that's the thing that she like literally, and like, this is, this is the tragedy of, of Olivia. Like I, I like, I find Olivia like a really fascinating character and, and like at a really, really like probably the most tragic character in this. And that is like, She's, like, been so thoroughly and utterly broken by her upbringing. Like, it's not a surprise that she can't comprehend love. That it's not something that's real to her, you know? Because it never was. Right. 
And, like, that's the sort of, like, rage and pain, like, the sort of howling void inside of her that she, like, is driven to recreate by, like, destroying the universe, you know, is this void of love, is my psychological reading of her. (laughs) I love it. I'm just still wrapped up in howling void. That was, like, so wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, That takes us to... The person we've been talking about, which is Ethan at the end. Um, and of course, there's Christopher Lloyd, which, you know, I never noticed until I listened to this other podcast. Did you guys ever pick up on the fact that Christopher Lloyd shaved his eyebrows hmm. for this role? Really? He has, he has no eyebrows and it was his idea. Huh. <laughs> he is like I love Christopher Lloyd. Christopher Lloyd is an unbelievable actor. Like he is an actor who always just like vanishes into whatever role he's in. Because if you think about like you know like these are both sort of comedic roles, but if you think about like Doc Brown versus Uncle Fester in in uh, Adam's Family, you would like never guess that those are the same person. Um, so like I just love that he's in this show because he's so freaking brilliant, and it's like totally like it does not surprise me at all that Christopher Lloyd would be like, you know what this character doesn't have is eyebrows. That's like a very important part of, like, that's 100% Christopher Lloyd. (laughs) You know, it's funny you say that because even though we don't see him, um, you know, obviously he's in like, what, three, four episodes total in the series. Um, His graveside scene with Cassie and his scene with her in the hallway of the Emerson Hotel in season four um, and after, you know, when he's really articulating and making the case for the Red Forest are two scenes that I always find like mesmerizing. Yeah. And like on the theme of love, I think, isn't it? It's really interesting too that like for him, right? It's about, it is about love. It's like a, a person that he loved and lost. Right. Like I think he could convince me of the Red Forest. Yeah, for sure. Like he, he, like he understands what Olivia can understand, which is that the appeal the selling point is always going to be about love. It's going to be about telling people about like, you know, like basically like selling people like the snake oil is, Hey, I got a version of love where you can have all the love with none of the pain. Um, and like, that's right. the thing that, you know, that like that Cassie almost falls for. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing is you have, um, kind of like three separate entities in Olivia, uh, pallid man and, and Shaw, which mm. is you have, you know, the, the one who's just a false prophet, period. Like, Olivia is just out there doing right. whatever Olivia does. Right. She, her <laughs> intentions are not good. She's full of malice and screw everybody. Uh, you have the pallid man who is a fanatic. Mm-hmm. Who you never quite know what his, you know, intentions are because he's just like, I'm following this till the end of the end, no matter what happens. And then Shaw to me is a very interesting character in the sense that I consider him to be a true believer. Yeah, he definitely mm-hmm. is. In that way, if we assume that the Red Forest is, is a bad thing, he's the most dangerous of all three of them. Oh, for sure. And he's the one who got them all their followers, right? Like the reason that they right. have an army is because Shaw could could land that sales pitch. Like, mm. can you imagine the the pallid man trying to make that pitch? Like, that would never. <laughs> You'd be, like, so fucking creeped out. <laughs> You'd be like, I do not, I do not want to buy that set of knives. No, right, yeah. <laughs> Please go away from my door. 
Doesn't doesn't Pallet Man also have a thing with his father, right? Like there's a there's like stuff that for, is his father. No, no, no I know, I know, but like it's that's part of his like motivation is like the, his father is this man who he loved. Yeah, and he was murdered. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, by Agent Gale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's the fun loop. Um, the next fun loop um, is obviously in the next episode. We're going to find out how Agent Gale knew, you know, that he did know about Berlin. But also, they're in this episode, and Agent Gale is the one that ultimately kills Shaw. So, That's right. And Mantis is there. Mantis always pops up, right? Yep. Like, we got an Agent Gale, and we've got Tidy Pallid Man. <laughs> <laughs> Baby Pallid Man. When he was just That's Pallid a, Boy. Yeah. That's, <laughs> Funko Pop I want. Baby oh Pallet Man. <laughs> I want I want older Pallet Man with the eyebrows. <laughs> but not yes. made of clay. Like it just needs no. to be like a caterpillar on there. Yeah. It just needs to be like fur. That would be great. Aw, uh, Erin, thanks so much for coming back. Thank it's you. So fun to have you on for this one. Thank you for having me. It's been a blast. So next we'll be talking about nature. Um, and the return of Agent Gale, which just makes me happy every time that man is on screen. Um, so if you guys have anything else, we'll see you soon. See you soon. Anybody want to take us out with, uh, if I could turn back? If I could turn back time. If I could find a way. I'd take back those words that have hurt you. If you stay. <laughs> Our cold open has to be one of those.